Hi, everybody. <laughs> hey. We welcome you to Soundtrack City, and it is the most wonderful time of the year. Oh, guys, it's spooky season. Yay! Yay! We are super excited. And we are still recording apart from each other, but if we were in the same room, to my left would be Frankie. Eek! And to my right would be the most amazing Misa. And we wish we could record together, but right now there is still a pandemic going on. Not sure if you guys have heard, um, but there's this thing going around and we kind of have to stay inside. Yeah, I mean, um, still social distancing, still wearing masks, you know, just being smart and um, decent human beings. Yes, and uh, what better way to show off your decency as a human being than by remembering to wear your mask, guys. Please, 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 I can't believe I have to say this, but please be considerate of your fellow human being. One thing that I like to kind of see it as is like, don't necessarily see a mask as a task, but think of it as a way to show off your personality. Uh, I know all my friends have been getting custom-made masks and everyone's just kind of creating like a conversation piece that they can wear and I think that's really cool. So, you know, you, I know the disposable ones are accessible, but it's always nice to get a custom one done that you can rewash and wear it over and over again and that shows off a bit of yourself too. Yeah, there's a bunch of sites out there, you know, besides Etsy, um, there are, that are taking like famous art pieces and making them into masks. Um, you know, of course, everyone with a Cricut can add vinyl for you. There's so many different things that you could do. And they're super easy to make, too, if you don't want to spend the money ordering one. Um, so I definitely agree. That's a great idea, Misa, to definitely customize and have it as a conversation piece, especially now during spooky season. Oh, my gosh. You could have, like, different killer masks like Michael Myers. Um, you could do uh, Ghostface. You know, how fun is that yeah yeah i actually saw a, uh, a a face mask with the same pattern as the carpet from the shining that was freaking cool that's amazing that's amazing yeah yeah and so on top of that guys we do know people who make masks so if you need a custom mask or just a fabric mask that you want to be able to reuse hit us up let us know. Visit our Instagram. We tend to tag them when we give them shout outs and such. Mm -hmm. So you can definitely find a friend, friend of a friend that will help you out and hook you up. Yes. Cool. Good things, guys. Whoops. Uh -huh. Thanks for coming to our TED Talk. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we just wanted to let out that friendly <laughs> reminder just in case any of you guys have forgotten. Uh, just because you're bored doesn't mean the pandemic is over. Can you say that louder? <laughs> I hate to break it to you guys. And uh, I mean, to be honest, what really is there that you can do at 100% enjoyment anyway right now? You can't eat without being paranoid. You can't travel without being paranoid. You can't go to the movies without being paranoid. You might as well stay home and get creative. Right. This is a great time. And the one exception we will make as far as staying home is please vote. Yes. If you are in Texas, we will be able to vote as early as October 13th. So get up, get out, and vote early if you can, in person if you can. And if you're doing the mail-in thing, 
Please follow all of the steps, guys. If you are doing the mail-in voting, please make sure that you are doing the envelope within the envelope and you are making sure everything is sealed or else your vote is void. Seriously. Yes. Seriously. Exactly. Thank you, Frankie. Everyone, I want you guys to double, triple, quadruple check. If you are doing a mail-in ballot, please, please, please read the instructions carefully. Sometimes it comes down to something as small as the color of the pen you are using. Yes. We want your vote to count. You want your vote to count. So please be sure that you are following everything, all the instructions as closely as you can, and get that ballot in as soon as you can. I actually just saw today Lyft, the the car ride service, they are offering free rides up to $15 in Texas if you need a ride to a Harris County ballot box. Contact Lyft if you need a ride. There are no excuses this year, guys. Vote. And then there's also going to be a 24-hour voting day. And I uh, forgot what day that is. Um, I want to say it's like October 29th, I think it's going to be. There's, it's for one day only, it's 24 hours, and there are like 12 locations throughout Harris County. That's awesome. Maybe I can find a link to all the locations. Yes, and that'd be great. Blog. And I do know it's going to be drive through also. Um, so just, and make sure you have your mask, guys. Yes, masks are super, super duper important. So be sure that you bring those. And pretty much required to vote. They're going to make you put one on anyway, so just make sure you bring your own. Thank you for tagging that on. <laughs> so please, guys, when if and when you do go out, please wear your masks and definitely wear your masks when you vote. Just please be careful. Please be cautious. Be aware and be an active member of society and vote. All right. So with the business set aside, <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> oh, God. I've been waiting. So patiently, right? <laughs> No, not at all. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So uh, now that it is October, Soundtrack City officially transitions into Spooky City. And we are going to spend the next few weeks discussing the soundtracks to some of our favorite horror movies. And horror, again, is a big umbrella these days, guys. So we are going to cover all spectrums of horror, silly horror. Maybe some gore horror, I don't know, Uh, fun horror, parody horror, we're going to get into all of it. Family horror? Is that a thing? Oh, hell yeah, family horror, like like Nightmare Before Christmas and shit. Exactly, exactly. I would consider that like spooky family, scary family (laughs) genre. (laughs) We're including it all, we're super excited. Yeah, nothing is off limits. If it would be in the horror section at your 90s video rental store, we want to talk about it. Yes. I'm so excited for these next four weeks. Indeed. And today, Frankie's going first. Eek! I am so, I was um a little worried because I didn't know who was going. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's been okay. a while, but it's definitely you. <laughs> Yay! Okay, so um, we did put my clue up and Misa and I did decide that this week we were going to tell each other what our movie was and so she knew my clue um but I wasn't sure if anyone else had guessed I forgot to check before 
it was a very just you know random photo so but anyways um my opener for spooky season is the 1997 american slasher film that was directed by jim gillespie written by kevin williamson and that is i know what you did last summer yes i'm so excited I honestly had not watched this movie in years, Misa. And so re-watching it, I was like, this is a dope film. <laughs> Even though it has some mixed reviews, um, it's still a really just, it brought back that um, that love for those just like slasher films. You know what I mean? Like, I know you did Scream. Um, it was right up there. I do think Scream was better, in my opinion. I know typically there's, like, that clash, like, whether you're Team Scream or Team <laughs> I-K-W-Y-D-L-S. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. I'm so glad you knew the acronym because <laughs> um, well, I've had to write it several times. Several times, um, for sure. Several times. <laughs> just just a couple, just a couple. Um, so I, there is kind of, like, you know, kind of like the Backstreet Boys and Instinct thing. It's very much like that. Um, but I do feel like this movie was up there and it was very much a part of that, bringing back that love for slasher movies, um, taking those urban legends and making them into films, which I love. Um, this film starred Jennifer Love Hewitt, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Ryan Phillippe, and Freddie Prince Jr. So great cast. Um, and this was kind of, like some of their starting movies for most of them actually so that was really cool to see that they all started with a horror movie a slasher film and then they all went to like um we know that ryan philippi and sarah michelle had a different movie together jennifer love hewitt went on with like her singing career and then like tv show stuff and freddie prince just became mrs geller so (laughs) he also wrote for wwe for a few years I did forget about that. Yes, when I was researching. Yeah. Um, And I know, though, that he did it because he enjoys being on the back end. You know, he likes being the producer, that kind of stuff. While um, Sarah very much enjoys the acting, being that front person. And he was just being a supportive husband, which I think was great because they had kids together. And that's what they decided worked best for their family. So, I know it's kind of sidetracked from my slasher movie, but I thought it was cute. <laughs> it is. They are seriously such a cute couple. And can we gush about Freddie Prinze for just a moment? Oh my God, he's perfection. Mm, 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 mm. Because because we went ahead and told each other what movie we were doing, I went ahead and rewatched. I know what you did last summer, just so I could refresh. Yeah. And I went back and rewatched like a few like reviews on it and stuff, and I was just like, man, because. You're right. Uh, Scream and I Know What You Did Last Summer were kind of like neck and neck. Like a lot of people, they both have a very dedicated following. Mm-hmm. And they both became like sagas. So I, I get it. I get why people would prefer I Know. I do happen to be a Scream person, but that's just me. Um, but I still enjoy the hell out of a teen slasher. Oh, and it was made in the 90s? Give it all to me. Exactly. Yes, that's perfection. Like, that's the recipe for Swoon. Mm -hmm. And let's just, I want to mention, they do have similarities because Kevin Williamson wrote both the scripts. 
Yep. He wrote Scream and its sequel, Scream 2. I don't think he did Scream 3. He did do Scream 4, though. Um, and he did I Know What You Did Last Summer. Um, and he actually did I Know What You Did Last Summer before Scream, but um, Scream just got picked up first. So, And it was like a year prior to I Know What You Did. So um, just some fun little back information. Um, it was released October 17th, 1997. And like I said, it did have mixed reviews from critics, but it was successful. It grossed $125 million worldwide on a $17 million budget. And it was the number one film for three consecutive weeks. Um, it does have the two sequels. I still know what you did last summer. And then I'll always know what you did last summer. I personally have only seen, I still know. Um, did you watch the, I'll always know? <laughs> yeah, I've seen okay. all three of them. <laughs> okay. I was going to say, I just, I fell off the franchise. Sorry. How do you, was it worth watching? I know it didn't have any of the original people, right? Please don't be sorry. Um, <laughs> 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 let me just, I, I did go ahead and watch it. Um, be, yes, you're right. None of the original actors, like none of the, none of the the four in this one or the sequel came back. And um, it, the third one really takes a stupid fucking turn. Like there's a guy on YouTube that I follow, Dead Meat, and he's a huge horror movie fan. And he straight up said that I'll always know what you did last summer is the worst horror film he's ever seen in his life. Oh, shit. And it's stupid because they turn the killer, the guy with the hook. Yeah. They turn him into like a supernatural being. So when he finally takes the hood off, he looks like a zombie. But why? And it's just, and the beginning was stupid. The beginning was like, I can't even piece it all together now. I would suggest watching it for the sake of, oh my God, this is so terrible. Well, I do love those. <laughs> but I don't recommend watching it and go and you go in saying like, oh, man, I'm so excited for this. I can't wait to see it. Third one. Hell yeah. No, it's not going to be like that. <laughs> okay. Well, at least uh, we're prepared, friends. So, you know, watch it maybe uh, when you have nothing else to do, you know, like during a pandemic or something. Yeah. While you're in quarantine. Stay exactly. at home. Being safe. Exactly. exactly. You can watch it um, in your backyard with a giant screen and make it a night. Yes. Oh, super fun. So fun. we totally did that. Yes, we did. We did. We finally watched Rocky Horror to celebrate the 45th anniversary. Um, and it was so much fun. We did social distance. We did have masks on. Um, and we watched it outside. So all very safe. And it was just, it was a good time. It was awesome. Everything was perfect. Even the weather. Yes, the weather was amazing. It was awesome. So um, I Know What You Did did have a couple of awards that it won in um, 1997. It won the ASCAP Award for Top Box Office Films. It was nominated for a Saturn Award for Best Horror Film. And it did win um, Jennifer Love Hewitt won uh, for Blockbuster Entertainment, Favorite Female Newcomer, as well as Sarah Michelle Gellar for Favorite Supporting Actress. Freddie Prince, Jennifer Love Hewitt, and Ryan were all nominated from Blockbuster as well. They didn't win. And then, um, let's see, and MTV, same thing for Breakout Performance, Sarah Michelle Gellar, and International Horror Guild Award for Best Movie. It was nominated. So it was it was up there. Um, and it's very with the, uh, the nineties filming vibe. Um, you know, they 
pushed, I guess, the gore and the blood for that time. You know what I mean? Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm watching it now. I'm kind of like, oh, that's cute. <laughs> um, and there's still some moments of like, I would be, you know, scared or worried, especially if someone's coming at me with a hook. And even just the way he like shoves it in people's face, I would, that would scare me. But, you know, great film. And so I'm just so excited to like jump into this movie. Um, and I didn't even realize, Misa, as I was choosing my songs, like four of my songs are actually cover songs. Oh, no shit. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, I didn't know this. Okay, now I need to, now I need to hear you talk about this. <laughs> yeah, I'm super I was like, wow. Okay, so there are actually two soundtracks for this movie. One is a score and the other is a bunch of like 90s rock songs. And um I couldn't find so John Debney is the one who did the original score and I don't know because I wasn't able to find this. So if anyone is, please let me know. Um I don't know if he's the one who combined all of the various rock songs, but it's kind of a very wide variety of 90s, like alt and then like some harder rock. And a majority of them were covers and those covers, some of them were done specifically for the film and some of them were done just because the artist chose to do them. But I really appreciate whoever put that soundtrack together, like taking the covers. And one of them, like I was shook because I didn't even know that they covered this song. And I was like, how have I gone my whole life not knowing this? Oh my gosh, I need to hear what you're talking. I need to, I'm so excited. It is our opening song, guys. So we open up and we are zooming across this beach we see waves crashing um it gets very like kind of dusky like we see the sun is setting it's beautifully filmed the camera pans in we see the sun setting the music starts to shift to this like ominous creepy vibe we see a teen boy sitting on like the edge of this cliff and he's like flipping this kind of like coin like pendant type thing in his hand um and then it shifts from him and goes into fireworks so it's obviously fourth of july weekend and during this time we are greeted by the most amazing cover of summer breeze by type o negative So for you guys who don't know Summer Breeze, it is like a kind of like soft rock um, 70s song, you know, Summer Breeze makes me feel fine. That one, um, the way Typo does it, oh my God, like it is so deep and dark and it's just freaking perfect for this scene because we get that beautiful like natural earthy ocean vibes and then we see this kid sitting on the rocks and then we're like oh shit the music is dark like what is happening and it's just it's perfect it's perfect best way to open this so this song like I said is by um 
originally by a band called Seals and Crofts. It was released in 1972. It did reach number six on the Billboard Hot 100, um, and it is ranked as one of like the best summer songs, um, which would make sense why they put it in this film as well, because it is a summer teen movie. So the original version um, is very different in terms of the way that the melody goes, the music goes, like it's very like light and airy. It just matches what it's singing about. Type O's version is very much like gothic metal style, which if you don't know who Type O is, that totally matches everything about them. And they are an American gothic metal band that was formed in Brooklyn, New York in 1989 um, by Peter Steele, Kenny Hickey, Josh Silver and Sal, I never say his name right, Avruscato, um, who was later replaced by Johnny Kelly. Um, they are not like a death metal band, but they are very like deep, dark. They use those minor scales in their songs, um, and everything is like tuned way down. They took a nice kind of poppy, airy song and they typo negative it. Negative yes. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Exactly. And it's like, I cannot wait for you to hear it, guys. I can't wait for you to like see the video. It's it's just so creepy. And Peter is like this giant, like six, seven man with like long hair and just it's perfect and here he is singing like this what's supposed to be this romantic soft summery cutesy song and it's so dark and haunting and beautiful and I love it it made me fall in love with this song all over again um, we did lose Peter Steele in 2010 to heart failure from an aneurysm, and that did lead to the band breaking up. They were still very much touring and performing up until that point, and that was a sad day for, um, you know, just gothic rock in general. This song did not chart when Type O covered it, but most songs done by metal artists especially gothic metal don't really ever chart if i'm being honest <laughs> right yeah that's actually now that you've mentioned that you're right yeah that's unfortunate i it is i'm like where's our metal you know chart billboard billboard where are you at <laughs> <laughs> they should totally have that um so even though the song didn't like get awards or get recognized by their following, it was very much a big deal because anyone who loves Typo loved to hear the songs that they did cover. Um, they do have a wide variety of songs that they covered, and for the last couple years in their career, they were actually doing a lot more soundtracks. Like, they did Mortal Kombat, they did Bride of Chucky, um, they did Freddy vs. Jason, and even have a song that appeared in, like, Blair Witch Project, which I thought was really cool also. The Blair Witch sequel? No, the original Blair Witch Project. Where was music in the Blair Witch Project? No idea. Um, but he did do lyrics with Ozzy Osbourne. 
Interesting. Oh, you know what? I wonder if it was one of those things where, like, the movie had a soundtrack, but there wasn't actually any of the music in there, like the Scorpion King. Oh, yeah. You're probably right. Yeah. Maybe it was something like that. Maybe. Maybe, like, an unofficial or something. What's it called? Uncredited? Something like that. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Not sure. Um, I'll definitely have to look more into that. But I just thought that was really cool because it looked like they really started working in, like, the horror scene, you know? They, and they're kind of actually really perfect for oh, God, yeah. a horror movie uh, soundtrack because, like, not to not to necessarily categorize them because they're metal, they're automatically horror. No, that's not necessarily the case. But like their sound and the ambiance, it really goes well with a horror scene. And so even when I rewatched this. Um, I like I had the captions on and stuff and I was like listening to the song and I was like wow this is actually a really banging ass soundtrack and then when I realized what the song was I was like wait a minute yeah (laughs) this is a completely like it's like a song that was like turned on its head yes yes and like I said like I don't know what it was um but at the end of their career they went like soundtracks and then they also recorded a lot of covers during the 90s like I'm talking the doors they did um like I said Steel and Oath they did Neil Young they even recorded Angry Inch from Hedwig and the Angry Inch oh that's awesome I have to find that Yes, we definitely do. Um, they also did like Santana. Um, they did a bunch of their songs. They did a medley of like Beatles, Black Sabbath, Deep Purple. Like they, um, they did Jimi Hendrix. Like it's just it's amazing that they went and they did all of these awesome covers, and they really did type O negative it, <laughs> <laughs> negative it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> I absolutely love it. Uh, now, I do want to mention when they first covered this song, it was actually going to be completely typoed and changed to be called a song um, Summer Girl. And Peter was going to be adding in new lyrics. But Seals and Crofts, the original band, said that they really didn't like the lyrics that they were going to be using. And so to respect their wishes, he did just continue to cover it with the original lyrics instead, which I thought was really respectful. Yeah, it is. But it makes me curious as to what these lyrics were. I know. I really want to know. So anyways, after this amazing song, we get this really dark, deep entrance, and then we see those beautiful 4th of July fireworks. It's like a huge change in the movie. We go to this like little fisherman's town where we see everyone celebrating 4th of July. Everything is decorated. And we go to basically like a a Miss America mini pageant for this small podunk town. And um, this is where we're introduced to our four characters. We're introduced to Julie, Barry, Ray, and Helen is on the stage um, basically trying to win Miss America of the town. And after she does win, because she's amazing, the four teens decide they're going to go to this little bar, and they hang out for a couple minutes, and it's, like, really packed. It looks like it's the only bar that people go to, Um, and there's, like, a little confrontation between this other guy, Max, who is trying to, I guess, ask Julie out for lunch or dinner or something before they all leave off to go to college. And she politely declines, but Barry, who is played by 
Ryan Phillippe is a little bit of a drunk and an asshole, and so he kind of starts a fight. They all leave. They start going to this beach, and this is where I thought was really cool. At the beach, they start, like, retelling all the urban legends, and they're like, no, 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 he had a hook on his hand, and then it was the roommate who, like, turned on the light, and, like, I just thought that was a really cute scene to add in. Um, I think it was really smart to do that because it also kind of foreshadows exactly some of the things that are going to happen later on in the film. Um, after they leave this little area of the beach, it is quite evident that Barry is completely, completely drunk. And so Ray takes over as driver. As they are driving, they're listening to like some sad music and Barry's like, hell no, what is this shit? And he changes the radio and we are introduced to a wake up call by the mighty, mighty boss tones. And this song is an obvious different song than what was on the radio. It's like super jamming, hard rock. Barry is feeling it. He like stands up through the sunroof. He has his bottle of liquor. It looks like it's probably tequila or something. And he's like downing it, screaming through the window, you know, just enjoying his last, you know, thing before going off to college and separating from all of his friends. And as he does this, like, everyone's like, can you get back in the car? And he drops the bottle on top of Ray. And so, of course, Ray's like, oh, my God, freaking out. There's bottles everywhere. He he is not paying attention while he's driving. Julie has her eyes on Ray. Nobody's being a responsible driver or a passenger. And as he's you know, trying to clean up the alcohol, pick up the bottle, Barry suddenly starts screaming, watch out! And then something smacks into their car. It flies and hits Barry in the face. The car spins around, and they are at a stop on this curb. They all get out. They're like, oh, my God, what the hell just happened? Of course, Barry is yelling at Ray because, you know, you fucked up my dad's car, and they're like, what did you hit? What did you hit? They're like, it must have been like a dog or something. They're trying to figure this out. Um, and then they're like, well, where's the dog or where's the deer, whatever we hit? And this is when Julie looks over and finds a bloody boot. And she's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> and then... This makes I'm sorry. This makes me think of scary movie. Exactly. Oh my god, we hit a boot. Where's the foot? <laughs> exactly. I'm sorry. Go on. No, it's hilarious. And thank you, pop culture reference. Mm-hmm. So then they're like, oh my god, and then they look in the curb, in the like crease of the um curb on the road, and there is a guy and they're like oh my god is he dead is he alive someone check him they're like well you're the one who hit him you check him and then they like freak out of course because they're teenagers and they're drunk and then they're like we can't go to the police and julie who is you know trying to be the sweet and innocent person that she is is like no we need to go to the cops it was an accident they'll have to believe us it was an accident and none of them are really listening to her So all the while, this awesome song is playing, and this song is 
it's such a it's such a badass song and it's very different than anything that the mighty mighty boston's actually put out because they are a ska punk band um they were formed in 1983 and they've had a, a like very large variety of people who have been in and out of the band um but the current lineup is um like 10 people and they all have different you know like they do vocals and percussion they also have like guitar trombone keyboard saxophone you know the whole shebang for those amazing ska bands um and this song that they chose to feature is actually like a random song that they chose to do it was like an extra song that they recorded on a cd and so there was very little information that I could actually find about it. Um, it was released in 1997. It was an extra song or track that was released on the album, The Impression That I Get. Um, and literally, that's about all I could find about this song. And like upon researching, like there's a big following for Mighty Mighty Boss Tones. They're like, it's so crazy that they only recorded this song like randomly. They do sing it live at some of their concerts. So if you ever go to a concert of theirs, because they are still touring, you can maybe hear it. But there's like no information about the song. <laughs> so and I tried for like hours to find something. Um, it is a very different song that they wrote and I don't know if maybe it was like a situation they were going through or like something different in their lives um I don't know uh Dickie Barrett is the lead vocals and I don't know if maybe he wrote it because of something going on like with changes but the lyrics are super different from their normal like kind of I don't really know how you describe ska like the I don't I, I'm stuck in my words right now I don't know how you describe like the typical ska lyrics if you will hmm um random <laughs> it is definitely random this song is also random but this song is more about um like waking up to the realization that we are sheep and kind of that the government controls us and it's just a lot of like the song is literally written as one giant stanza verse oh okay so no breaks or anything no there chorus. are no breaks no chorus it is a very short random extra track but it is amazing in this movie so i had to include it and it, and I wish I had more information, guys. So I apologize for not, but uh, I can't wait for you to hear it. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. So, like I said, this whole, this song is playing, and it's a very different feel because um, it really matches Barry's attitude, kind of, because we see him really change, especially in this scene when the teens are trying to figure out, like, what the hell are we gonna do? And of course, they're not thinking because they're teenagers and some of them are drunk and they carry um, the body to the other side of the road to kind of try to hide it and this is when of course Max the guy who is trying to pick up Julie shows up and he's like oh you know what's going on Barry pretends to be drunk and then after Julie finally gets rid of Max they all agree that okay we're gonna we're gonna dump the body and so they take the body down to the docks and they throw the body into the water 
And of course, as they do this, um, Helen realizes that the body was holding on to her crown that she won in her little fake Miss America pageant. And so, of course, Barry has to dive down and go get it. Well, as he dives down and gets it, they realize, like, he sees the body open its eyes. And they still have no idea who this person is. And Barry freaks out. He comes up. And then this whole scene where he, like, basically attacks Julie. And no one really does anything. That scene is really hard for me to watch, by the way, even though it's not super, like, abusive. I know you rewatched it, but that that scene is just, it makes me hate Ryan Phillippe. He's a very aggressive character in this film. Super aggressive. Um, and one of the thing, one of the things that I saw in the reviews that I've been watching of the movie is, of course, the character of Barry is supposed to be an athlete, but Ryan Phillippe is actually kind of really lean. Like he's not, he does, he's not the uh, image that pops up when you think of an athlete. Right. Um, but in because of that, because his physique doesn't necessarily match, I think he played it to where his character and his personality and the aggravation would at least match that of like a a high school kind of a loose end athlete. Yeah, I completely agree. So um, and I don't know if that um, is what, you know, Gillespie intended, but it definitely makes you like not like him. Um, and then it does lend itself to why maybe Julie and Ray didn't really work out because we see that in the next scene. Um, because Ray doesn't really say anything. Like, like if some man put his hands on your neck and, like, throws you into a car, your boyfriend better protect you. Mm-hmm. Like, period. <laughs> right? right. And this is, a, this is another part that they make fun of in Scary Movie. Because, like, Lachlan Monroe is choking Anna Ferris and John yeah. Abrahams. He's just, like, patting him on the shoulder. Like, hey, man, come on. Let it go, man. Like, that's it. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> and that's kind of Freddie Prince Jr. All he does is he's just like, let her go, Barry. But he doesn't, like, no, you shove Barry off of your girlfriend, dumbass. He's Ray is very passive in this mm-hmm. movie. Like, Freddie mm-hmm. Prince is super passive. Um, kind of annoying to me, actually. Like, even though I love him, there were parts where I was like, ugh. God, what did I see in you? <laughs> I love you. Yeah, he's a big, he's a big softy. He'd rather talk yeah. than act, I think. Yes, 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 yes. I completely agree, 100%, 100%. And Ryan is like total opposite. So it's just, it's a crazy scene. Um, it, it also explains why the four friends separated. Because if that's how they ended things, it did not end on a good note I mean you threw a body in the water and then you choked one of your other friends and it was just you know who's gonna be friends with you after that um it's just it's a rough scene to watch but I do love how they show the body like grab Barry I thought that was really awesome um and I did think it was interesting that the body sunk so fast I know that's totally random but I was like I thought bodies took just a little bit longer especially if they're not dead I also thought it was interesting that he seemed to sink feet first. Yes, he was standing. Yeah, and then he just he was able to just I guess stay there like instead of float. Like man has some awesome lungs. It it, it made me wonder like maybe like it's either movie magic or they loaded his uh slicker pants full of rocks. 
<laughs> yes, definitely one of the two. One of the two. Um, but yeah, I was like, oh, that's weird, um, but interesting. So anyways, I know, side note. So after the four friends separate, we are shown one year later, we are at a college and we hear Toad the Wet Sprockets cover of Hey Bulldog. super fun fact about this one for you tell me so again this is a cover the original was written by and performed by john lennon and paul mccartney it is a beatles song and it is are you ready misa i think so i don't know (laughs) i try to build anticipation because you just know so much that i have to like (laughs) I don't know. You got me excited. I'm like, what? Tell me who, what? So this song, Hey Bulldog, is actually Dave Grohl's favorite Beatles song. And I found a version of him singing it live for you. How freaking adorable. Dave fucking loves the Beatles. (laughs) Yes. And I knew he loved the Beatles, but I didn't. Oh, oh, I dropped my mic. I'm so sorry. You're okay. You're getting excited. It's okay. It's understandable. I was excited. I was. Okay. Talk of Beatles and everything. So um, I knew he loved the Beatles, but I didn't know that this was his favorite. So when I saw that, I was like, oh my God, that's so cool. I have to make sure I throw that in there for Misa. So um, I didn't know if you knew that was his favorite, but Hey Bulldog is his favorite Beatles song and Toad, the Wet Sprocket, they covered it. It is one of the I didn't realize it's actually one of the more like slept on Beatles song, if you will. And because this is a cover song, guys, I'm going to start with information about the song and the Beatles, and then I'll go into Toad the Wet Sprocket, okay? Um, so, Hey Bulldog is originally a song written by the Beatles, and it was off of their 1969 soundtrack album, Yellow Submarine. It was primarily written by John Lennon, but of course, McCartney did play a big role into it. This song was considered like obscured and overlooked, but it has been considered one of the most amazing rock songs that they've ever written. Um, I know Paul held this song very high up um, in his own regard, and people who critique music often talk about the way that they arranged the bass and the guitar for the song. Um, and they called it one of the most inventive bass lines. So the song is definitely different. Um, and I didn't realize that it was a Beatles song at first. Stupid me. It is considered a psychedelic rock song. And the cover version that we hear in this movie is very different than the original, which I like also. Um, so I also found out that this is not the first Toad the Wet Sprocket cover of a Beatles song that was done. And that is why they were asked to cover this song for the album. This song was specifically covered for the album. So in the 90s, there was an album called Working Class Hero that was a tribute album put together for John Lennon. And basically, 
they got a whole bunch of like really popular 90s bands to cover songs from the Beatles. In that album, they covered Instant Karma and someone liked it so much that they asked Toad the Wet Sprocket to cover Hey Bulldog. So that is how our song came about in a really quick nutshell. In a really quick nutshell. <laughs> so, um, information about Toad the Wet Sprocket. Um, they are a 90s band. They actually formed in 1986, but they didn't gain popularity until the 90s. They had several songs that did chart, including Walk on the Ocean, All I Want, Something Always Wrong, Fall Down, and Good Intentions. They were still performing up until actually 2020. Um, like they literally just stopped performing because some of the members have walked away from the band. Um, they did take like a little hiatus in the late 90s and then they got back together after about eight years. They are not a very well known band, I guess. Um, like if I asked you if you knew them, do you, I mean, I think you would know them. The first, well, actually, no, but when you introduced the song initially, I was like, does she mean the toadies? <laughs> oh, you're hilarious. No, but, okay, no, actually, no, I haven't heard of them. Okay, yeah, they have very few songs, and I'll be super honest, for some reason, I always get them confused with, like, Soul Asylum and, like, Dishwalla, like, those types of bands. Okay, I see where, I see where you're going. You would kind of categorize them in the same place? Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and so, I mean, I'm not a huge Toad fan, but they do have several hits. And I do like the fact, I thought this was fun, that their name actually comes from a Monty Python comedy sketch. So I thought that was creative. Uh, but, I mean, there's not a whole lot of information about this band either, just because they are kind of, like, obscure. They have made a lot of media appearances, though, so I did want to include that. Like, after taking that hiatus, they came back and they did a lot of movies and television soundtracks. Um, they've been in Buffy the Vampire Slayer, So I Married an Axe Murderer was before the break. Um, they actually did um, Crazy Life on Empire Records. They did a song from Fear. Um, like I said, they did that whole uh, John, Tri John Lennon tribute album. And they did Jobs. Animal Crackers, which is a new, like, Netflix movie. Super cute, by the way, if you haven't seen it. And a Roger Miller tribute album as well. Um, so, I mean, they've been staying busy, even though, again, not a super popular band. But they do, they've, they've really put their name out there for the people who love them, and that's exciting for them. So, and there's a lot of other people who have covered the song, just because it is a Beatles song. So, I did want to talk about some of those covers. Because, you know, Beatles, iconic. And some of those covers range from not just Toad the Wet Sprocket, but um, 515, That Petrol Emotion, Blank Theory, Alice Cooper, uh, Rangzine, Joan Osborne, like random people who I really don't know all these awesome artist um, and then there is actually a lot of instrumental covers as well which I really like the instrumental because it makes that bass line stand out even more 
So if you don't mind, Misa, I would love to send you my favorite instrumental version of the song as well, if you don't mind throwing that onto the blog. Yeah, man. Link me. Awesome. So I'll be sending you a bunch of those. So this song is a total change in the vibe from the movie. We've gone from, like, very dark, very deep. The last scene was pretty intense emotionally and this is just a total change in the atmosphere we do see julie like working away on something in college and she's a little reluctant to go home we learn that it is now again summer and so she's not staying at school and she doesn't want to go back and we know why her roommate drops her off she talks to her mom for a little bit and then she gets a letter and when she opens it it is the note from the killer or the fisherman um i know what you did last summer and this is where we get like our climax if you will because it's written in this like all caps very basic font actually it's a really nice handwriting if you will (laughs) and a julie like freaks out and runs up the stairs and like doesn't know what to do like pacing back and forth um and so finally she decides like i haven't seen these people in a year but i need to go and say something to them so she finds helen at the store where her family owns, they kind of whisper about what's going on and they decide, okay, let's go talk to Barry. Um, And Barry and Helen are not together anymore, we learn. And they show up at Barry's, like, obvious rich boy little house, and he's just as big of an asshole as he was back then, if not bigger. And, of course, he reacts in utter anger and like Misa said, just very aggressive about the whole thing. Like, how do we know this isn't a hoax? He very much just like, at first kind of blows it over. Yeah, he downplays it. Yeah, he's like, this is nothing, you know, whatever. They don't have any evidence, blah, blah, blah. That's ancient history. Um, And, you know, he just, he doesn't want anything to do with it. Till finally they do convince him, you know, like, let's go see Ray. And that's when they see Max, their old friend. And Barry is like, we know it's you. Like, you know, just confronts him, like throws him down. Um, you know, just like macho, small penis man syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> that's how I feel he acts in this movie. And so while they're like interrogating Max, uh, you know, He's pissed off. They all leave, and it's, you know, whatever. Um, Max is still pissed off. He is working in the fish thing, and I don't know if this is, like, really normal for them to have, like, giant cubes of ice and stuff all around. I have never been in, like, a fish market like this. uh, Oh, gosh. I I haven't been to a specifically fish market, but I have been to, like, like this, the the public market in Seattle and stuff like that, and there are just like uh, display upon display upon display of like piles of fish, and they are on giant beds of ice, but they're like they're cut up pieces of ice. So I'm not really right. sure what these ice blocks are doing on yeah, the. Yeah, there was like a giant block of ice, and of course Max is you know going about his job, and they're using those giant fish hooks, and he like 
hurts himself and stabs the hook into that giant block of ice and kind of walks away. And then we see him come back, and if you're paying really close attention, you realize the hook is missing. (laughs) And as he's, you know, he's not paying attention. He goes about his business, and he's doing something with the fish and the crabs. And as he's doing this, he realizes, like, there's some fog, and it looks like someone's walking towards him. And so he kind of looks up, and sure enough, it is the fisherman, and he, like, takes the hook and stabs it up through his chin and it goes through and like pulls his body and I always thought his death was really cool because because I do like how he goes like all the way through his chin um and into his mouth and we see like this deep dark red just dripping down and then the fisherman just pulls his body like nothing over the piles of ice and crabs and fish and I don't know I know that's really stupid that I like this scene but Mm -hmm. I thought it was well done. So <laughs> it was out of nowhere. It is a really cool kill, although I, I do get sad because it's Johnny Galecki, so he dies. Yes. <laughs> He's such a, I know, uh, for those of you who don't know who that is, um, Big Bang Theory. Um, in this movie, he is a, a little annoying, not cute like he is in Big Bang Theory, but, you know, it is sad to see him die. But I do like the way this was filmed. So anyways, after this, we do see, um, so the fisherman is obviously back in action he's pissed off we can deduct that he's obviously trying to get to these teens and the kids still are kind of going about their business julie's taking it more serious than the others they decide that they're going to try to you know figure out what's going on who knows how does this person know and so they they start researching they realize that the person that they think killed was a person named david egan And so they decide to go and visit the family. And, of course, Barry during this whole time is like, no, fuck that. Like, they don't know anything. He's very annoying and standoffish during this whole time. And he decides to go and work out. And as he's driving up to, like, what appears to be the only damn gym in the whole little small town, um, he's playing one of my favorite songs throughout the entire movie, and that is the song Hush that is performed by Kula Shaker. So the song is playing on the radio. And like I said, Barry like runs up into the gym and then he starts boxing Um, And this is a song that plays the entire time as he's working out. I don't know why we needed a workout scene montage, but, you know, whatever, 90s movie. (laughs) And so we get that little montage. And the song is just really cool. Um, It's very catchy, very different. Um, It's very psychedelic. And I didn't realize that this was a cover song. This song was originally written back in the 60s. And performed by someone named Billy Joe Royal, who I don't know who that is. I apologize. Um, But I do know that he did really well with this song. And that it was written for him by someone else named Joe South. (laughs) And it charted at number 52 back in the 60s. And yeah, that's about all those two did so 
You got but the obscure songs in this movie. I sure did. <laughs> I know. So not a whole bunch of information, but still a really good soundtrack, guys. So that song was then covered by Deep Purple in 1968. And then it was later covered by the person who sings it in this film, Kula Shaker, in the 90s. So, and he did try to um, kind of make it, you know, his own. Um, it was always very, like, kind of a psychedelic song, but um, Kula did add his own little twist to it. Um, so, I do like that. He is very well known in the UK because of his psychedelic rock band. Um, they have a lot of hits over there, songs that I've never heard of called Tativa, Hey Dude, Govida, and Sound of Drums are apparently very popular, all in the top tens over there. Um, they are still touring and everything, so if you want to hit them up, sounds cool. They were voted um, number 879 for the album that included the cover of Hush. And they did actually win some awards for their cover in 1997 from the song. They got four nominations for Brit Awards for the song, and they won two. So, I mean, it doesn't – this song is just really well reviewed by, I guess, whatever version you listen to because Deep Purple did really well with it, Billy Joe did really well with it, and so did Joe South. So – it's a great song. Every single person who covered it has at least peaked at number two, which I thought was really cool also. That is awesome. And I feel like, I don't feel like very many covers chart. I mean, they get popular sometimes, but right. like, do they chart all the time? I don't think so. I don't think so. And so I thought that was really interesting, and I definitely wanted to include that. The song was also used for the 2014 film Kingsman, the Secret Service trailer. So you might have heard it there. Um, and the song was placed at number 224 by the Virgin Radio for the 20th century's greatest songs ever written. So, I mean, it's a very well-written song, and it's kind of transpired lots of different decades because it was written in the 60s. Um, it was covered again in the 60s and then covered in the 90s and still charted every single time. And by different so. styles of musicians. Mm -hmm. Yes. Um, and one little fun fact about the um, band. So Kula Shaker is a spiritual, psychedelic indie rock band from England, like I said. And their lead singer, Crispian Mills, whose spiritual name is Krishna Kantha Das, is actually the son of Haley Mills, which I don't know if you know who that is, but she played Miss Bliss on Saved by the Bell, and she was also in a bunch of Disney movies back in the 50s and 60s. She did the original Parent Trap, she did Pollyanna, and like their entire family has been, I don't know if it's called knighted or just given titles. Every single person in their family is like sir or lady or whatever because of that. Oh, that's cool. So hang on. The chick from Parent Trap. Are you talking about the girl who played the twins in the original Parent Trap? Yep. That's his Holy mom. Holy shit. I know exactly who that is. Yeah, that's his mom. And she was like. She had that blonde bowl cut. Yes. <laughs> she was like the Disney it girl for like 
eight years. And mm. she did like a huge variety of films back then for them. So, um, yeah. And I didn't really, she's actually much younger than I thought. Cause I was like, Oh, holy shit. I had no idea. Um, but yeah. So he set, and I think that's why Crispian is very like psychedelic and free with himself and his music because he comes from royalty and he can do whatever the fuck he wants. <laughs> yeah, that must which, be nice. <laughs> I know, which I love. Um, so like I said, this song is super popular. It has been in a bunch of other things as well. Um, someone named Captain Jack covered it. Funky Junction covered it. Millie Vanilli included it on their 1988 film. The Partridge Family actually has a cover it when they did their TV series with David Cassidy. And uh, Love Affair recorded it for their 1968 album, The Everlasting Love Affair. And I thought that was really interesting. Because, again, the song has just been, like, recorded by literally every genre of music and still charted with every single person so crazy that's awesome so that's, crazy. this song must have an effect on people and it must be good luck because <laughs> yeah i know and i mean this is like the only song i know by kula and i was listening to their other songs and um you know great great band um not typically my style but this song is just like jamming this song is really, really cool. And I do like that they added kind of those ups and downs with the music. And that's one of my favorite things with soundtracks is when we really do kind of build it up with like a super like poppy, funky, like groovy song right before we get that omniscient, creepy, shit, there's someone watching me scene. And that's exactly what happens. After the song fades out, Barry is finished boxing and working out and he notices like someone's here in the locker room so he runs out and he's like hey is someone else here to the owner and he's like no we're by ourselves so he goes back he plays it off and that's when he realizes someone stole his letterman jacket so he runs out and sure enough the fisherman is in his car and tries to run him over and this is when we see like his really weak moment he's like screaming for help someone help me like a little bitch and um you know I, I thought I this is another scene that I think is really funny because it's just so different from like you know the hard-ass character that he's trying to play mm -hmm. um and so he does end up getting put in the hospital and this is when like Julie and Helen and Ray are like okay this is serious like we need to go for real to the to the police and everyone's like no like what are we gonna say what are we gonna do oh yeah we killed someone a year ago sorry and so once again they decide we're gonna leave it as is and of course julie is like no we need to research and find out more um there's a lot of other songs in between this time but i didn't pick any of them until kind of more towards the end so i'm gonna very quickly cover the middle part, because I don't want to ruin it for those of you who have not seen this amazing film, but basically we find out the person that they think is the killer after he has finally killed um, Barry, and then he kills Helen, Julie 
has gone back to David's sister's house and realizes that it wasn't David who they murdered, but it was, and I say murdered, I don't think it was a murder who they accidentally killed. Yeah. Well, they did throw him in the water, though. So, murdered, I guess, is appropriate. Killed? I don't know what you would call it, legally. You know, it was an accident that then they tried to cover up. So, yeah. What is that? Is that I'm, murder? I'm trying, Am I stupid? I, I guess that would, be, that would be the closest, or like, I guess if they did get charged and it went to court, they would definitely be charged with like tampering with a body or disposal of a body, improper disposal of a body and shit like that. Like, right? right? Like, like messing with the body. Yeah, I think I think you're right. Like, I don't know what the terminology would be. Like, um, isn't there something like uh, not reporting a crime? Like when you know something but you don't report it. What's that called? I think that depends on the state. That's that Seinfeld law. Um, and I think that depends <laughs> oh on the state. Some states have that, and then some because some states will be like the bystander law, where it's yes. like if something's happening, but not all states have that because bystanders have a tendency to make things worse, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and then the person, the victim, can blame the bystander for X, X, Y, and Z thereafter. So the bystander law right. varies, and so that's why some people stand around and record instead because if they get involved, it's going to get worse. Right, right. And then you have actual hard proof evidence because I know a lot of times people say that um, bystanders aren't always the most credible. So mm-hmm. um, just because, you know, you're so much is going on. So sorry, I know I totally segued, but I don't I don't know. I just I felt bad for a second saying that they murdered someone. And I wasn't sure if they actually did murder someone. <laughs> so anyways, we realized that it was not David who they actually ran over and then dumped and julie's like oh my god we see her run off um this is when we get the most awesome deaths chase with um helen and the fisherman and the fisherman does win he kills helen and then julie runs off to the docks and she sees ray's boat there's something that strikes her as odd though because Ray's boat is named Billy Blue, which is the name that David's sister gives as the best friend who came to check in on the family. And so Julie is now convinced that Ray is the killer and, like, has been behind this whole thing. So she starts running, and then it looks like this amazing, sweethearted man saves her from the big, bad Ray. Just kidding. Turns out. She runs right into the arms of a fisherman, and he gets her on the boat. Because who stupidly would go on a boat with someone? Like, no, sir, I'm going to go ahead and walk around the corner and stay on the land. (laughs) It amazes me that she spends the whole movie suspicious of everyone, fucking, like, looking over her shoulder, screaming at everything. What are you waiting for? And then the moment the stranger, like, knocks out her ex-boyfriend and says, go ahead and get in the boat, she doesn't question it at all. No. Fucking 90s horror, guys. Exactly. Like, the epitome of how scary movie became because of the stupidness that's put in these slasher films. But I love it. It's it's a love it. I, it's a love thing. Mm-hmm. So she gets on the boat, and then she quickly sees the slicker. She sees the hat. And then she sees all of those um, newspaper clippings that tell her 
oh my God, I walked right into the trap. Sure enough, Ray comes to, ends up rescuing her. Um, one of my favorite lines, though, is, then is the name of the fisherman. And he says, when you try to kill someone, you need to make sure that they're actually dead. <laughs> because she was like, I thought you were dead. And it's just, I think it's so funny and so sarcastic and satirical to this scene. And I thought, I, you never really hear a killer speak much. And I think that it's one of the reasons I do love Scream and this movie and even like Urban Legends, those types of movies, because they do let the killer actually talk. And they're kind of funny if you really listen to them, right? Oh, yeah. The killers are the most clever. Always. They're hilarious. So they get off the boat finally because Ray has saved Julie. The um, the fisherman is over the boat, and they're kind of hugging and talking, and the police are there now, and they're, you know, like, why would this man even come after you? They both deny knowing anything about that. Um, and... The cops are investigating the boat, and they raise up this net. And, of course, on the net is this perfect hook with a cut-off hand. And the cop says, oh, the body, the rest of the body will turn up. They usually do, which, of course, sets us up for that sequel, um, which I love that line. So after this, we get the scene change to one year later. We have... This amazing song, Kid, by Green Apple Quickstep, that takes us into the next scene. And we see that they are at the college. Julie is super happy. It's a very different character for her. Like, she literally looks happy she looks relieved like she's living her life um just a huge different character almost like her hair looks better she was almost like really pale and sick looking at the beginning of the movie would you agree me yeah yes um you can tell that the the death of the guy that they thought they killed like really got to her because when we see her in college for the first time at the beginning like she looks like she doesn't really do a whole lot of self-care. Like, her hair is just kind of, like, like really thinned out and it not well-maintenanced. And, I mean, I'm not judging the girl for not keeping up with herself every day, but you could tell that the guilt really took a toll on her. And now she's, like, a completely different, like, rejuvenated girl with, like, curled hair and she cares about herself now. So, yeah, right. I agree. It's a completely different character now. Yeah, and she's, like, bubbly, you know, happy on the phone. And, you know, it's apparent that she's talking to Ray, and they're talking about, you know, like, you know, he. I guess he asked her, like, what are you wearing? And she's like, a towel. And during the scene, I was like, her towel is, like, expertly cut to look cute but sexy because it's, like, almost crimped in the middle. I don't know if you noticed that, Misa. But I was like another like 90s, very like, um, I don't know if you've seen like the soap opera, like towel and sheet tricks that they do. And it made me think of that very 90s trick that they would do um, for those love scenes and things like that in the 90s. Because, you know, still trying to be modest, but not. Mm -hmm. Um, And I just thought that was 
I, of course, my random mind picked up on that. So she's walking around, talking on the phone. The water is on in their, like, little communal shower. And she's about to get off the phone, and she sees this letter with her name on it. And it appears to be in the same type of handwriting as the very first I Know What You Did Last Summer. And so we get a quick change from this song, Kid, to a very dark, omniscient, like, creepy sound. She does open the letter and it ends up being an invitation to, like, a mixer party. And so she takes a, like, breath, a sigh of relief, and she's fine. So the song Kid was written and performed by Green Apple Quickstep. And this song was actually written for the movie as well. And the video actually features parts of the um, the movie clips. So it looks like they're kind of performing for an audience. And this TV screen is shown, showing clips of I Know What You Did Last Summer. Um, Green Apple Quickstep is often abbreviated into GAGS, and they are an American rock band from Seattle, of course. They are described as like a post-grunge rock, like they came after kind of like Nirvana grunge, if you will, in the 90s. Um, and they consist of Tyler Willman, Daniel Timthorne, Steve Ross, and they do have a girl bassist, which I love, Marianne Braden. Um, and they had a couple like random hits, but nothing super, super popular or um, chart worthy. This was actually one of their bigger songs because it was in a film. And actually, the other ones that are considered like hits were also in films. So. And that was in the Basketball Diaries. And then there's another film that they did a song for called Homegrown, which is interesting. So, I mean, way to go. I think doing soundtracks is always a win-win, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Soundtracks are fucking – because people will be watching movies until the end of time. So as long as someone watches a movie, they're always going to hear your music. Yeah. Exactly. So, I mean, I'm sure they make other songs, um, but the most notable ones were songs that were included in films. Um, the band is still currently touring. They did break up for about 10 years, and they just got back together in May 2010, and they are doing reunion shows as well as um, releasing new material. The um, song for this film they did get to perform live at the premiere of the film which i thought was really cool and they were just it's a they're a very popular seattle band so there's not another obscure band that's there's <laughs> not a lot of information um but i do like that this song was again specifically written for the film and then they got to do that video with the film so that was really cool for them um so back to our movie after this song this is like a very kind of like poppy grunge i don't really like i guess post grunge is appropriate it is very poppy there's moments where this song at the beginning is very slow and kind of emo almost and then it changes into that kind of rock happy pop music and so that is the part that's included in this and it very much matches again how julie's acting she's happy she's excited 
Um, and then we get that change into the score. And that's when Julie hears something back in that shower. So she walks back in. She realizes she is completely by herself. Um, and she starts to get kind of like panicky. Um, and she's checking around and then she walks closer to one of the shower doors and she realizes that someone has written a note in the steam um what condensation right? yeah yeah condensation <laughs> i couldn't think of the word i was like tra- not trans not perspiration what's the word <laughs> i lost my train of thought um and it's i still know and she of course screams and then there's a body that jumps through the glass and immediately after that we're taken back into our song hush (laughs) (laughs) and it's just it's a very weird ending um and that completely sets us up for that sequel um it was originally supposed to end with an email and not her being in the shower but um gillespie really wanted something that was a little bit more like eye-catching and definitely left you hanging and he was asked to increase kind of that shock factor as well as the blood factor um so he added that in for that sake so yeah that is the end of the movie i had just a couple of random fun facts as well as some honorable mentions um i have two that i really liked one of them is called Wiki by hoover phonic and it's just this really cool, groovy, another like psychedelic punk song um, by an England band. And then um, the song Proud by Korn. And you know, I love Korn, so I had to include that one. Okay. But it is uncredited, so I didn't feel like I could cover it in my actual soundtrack choices. Because I really went back and forth with that one. I was like, no, I want to do it. But I was like, oh, but it's uncredited. It's not technically fair. <laughs> so I went back and forth with myself. Um, so just a couple of fun facts. Uh, Melissa Joan Hart was actually originally picked to be Julie for this film. Um, but she did turn it down because she said it was too much like Scream for her. And she was a Scream fan. Oh, I love her. <laughs> I totally understand why why she would go that way, though. Yeah, like she literally said, "quote I just thought it was a ripoff of Scream." Uh, MJ, MJ, <laughs> if you're listening, <laughs> let's get TV. <laughs> I I get it, I get it, but come on, give them credit. Kevin Williamson wrote both. Right, right. Let's give him a little bit of credit. Um. So, and it's funny that we actually did mention Ryan Phillippe, not really being that athletic part um, for the role of Barry, he actually wasn't really the first choice, but he was dating Reese Witherspoon during the filming of this movie. Um, And she had ties with Gillespie. And so she told him, hey, maybe you should let him audition. And that's how he got the part for this movie. That's awesome. Yeah. And Freddie wasn't really the first choice either. Again, this was one of his very first, like, big movies. Um, He did think that Freddie was too soft or not muscular enough. Um, But he did let him audition. And then finally, Freddie was chosen. 
Um, I mean, Freddie went so far as to like cut his hair. He worked out. He added weight on. Like he really, really wanted this part to make his name in Hollywood. Dedication, dedication. Um, there was some issues with the filming because of the culture, the pop culture reference to Gorton's Fisherman Fish Sticks. <laughs> um, they were a little upset because originally the slicker was going to be yellow with the matching hat, which does look like the uh, fisherman that's on the fish sticks box, right? <laughs> and so they wanted to make sure that they weren't associated. And so the movie had to change to make sure that there was no similarity at all. A couple things. <laughs> First of all, who had the original idea to put the killer in bright yellow? <laughs> um, I don't know. Because, oh my God. And second, did they seriously skip out on that product placement opportunity? I know, right? Like, hello, <laughs> you could have had Gorton's at the preview. I mean, classy. What's the fucking jail? Trust the Gordon's fisherman or <laughs> something like that. Okay, look, I'm not gonna lie. I don't. I didn't know they had a jingle. Yeah, I'm, I remember. I feel like I remember seeing that commercial when I was a kid in like the '90s, like where I get. I don't remember the commercial itself, but I remember like the graphic at the end would be the box with the man and the hat. And it's like trust the Gordon's fisherman. Now and I gotta put out. Now I gotta go to YouTube. Out with blood. <laughs> like a chain I'm gonna put the commercial um, on the blog oh my god please I can't wait okay and then one last thing that I did forget to mention at the front and I at the beginning and I do want to make sure you guys know I know what you did last summer is actually a young adult novel by Lois Duncan um it was very very much changed for the movie um and she hated the film hated it she was not happy about them changing it to be this murder slasher film even though the book does have some similarities with the kids running over um a teenager who's actually riding a bike no one actually dies in the book and she was very upset with how it was changed for the movie part of that is because her daughter was killed in an unsolved murder um, no one has ever been able to solve how her daughter was killed in real life. And so she did have some issues with that, um, with the violence. So I thought that was um, very interesting and I wanted to include that. And that pretty much wraps up. Oh, and one more thing. Okay, so I do want to, there was some drama with this film. One of the biggest dramas that took Place was that Sony released the first marketing materials for I Know What You Did Last Summer, declaring it being from the creator of Scream, which you know Wes was not having. And <laughs> Wes, Wes was pissed because even though Kevin did write the scripts, he didn't create, you know, Scream. Wes Craven did. And mm -hmm. so that was very much a lie. And they did go into court and they did finally set it like Miramax sued Sony over the claim. And finally they agreed like we'll drop everything and they were able to avoid the actual lawsuit. But yeah, 
it was very interesting. Um, and they, it created a lot of issues between those um, film companies. So yeah, that's my last little fun fact. And I hope you enjoyed it. And if you haven't seen this movie, I really hope you watch it. It is the classic 90s teen horror. Um, and just an amazing, fun flashback to 90s fashion, 90s music. Good times, good times. Ugh, 90s movies in general. Yes. So comforting. <laughs> For sure, even when you're dying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's the end of mine, and I can't Yay. wait to hear Misa's opening to Spooky Season. Yay! Okay, good job on I Know What You Did Last Summer. Such a classic. Thanks, boo. Love that film. Okay, and so now we are going to transition not very far, guys, because my movie was also made in 1997. And my movie is also kind of considered a teen slasher. Yep. And if you've been paying attention, we've mentioned its predecessor. (laughs) I'm so excited, guys. So for those of you who listened to our Spooky Season episodes last year, you know that I covered the soundtrack to Wes Craven's 1996 Scream. And I know you guys didn't think I was going to let you down. (laughs) I am covering Scream 2. She's back at it. Fuck. Yes. Okay, here we go. So Scream 2, it was released in 1997, directed by Wes Craven, and screenplay by Kevin Williamson. Whoop, whoop. Same guy who did I Know What You Did Last Summer. So we do have quite a few things in common between our movies. I love that. I love when we do that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's we're always kind of on the same radar. And guys, I had Scream 2 in mind. And she had I Know What You Did Last Summer in mind before we even told each other. So yeah. we were not influenced at all. No, no influence. I love So that. we were totally feeling 90s horror right about now. And it's what better way to kick off spooky season? Oh, my God, yeah. We had to go in with a bang, you know? Exactly, exactly. Started off right. So just a quick reminder for those of you who haven't seen Scream 2 or maybe you haven't seen it in a while. This is a star-studded fucking cast. We have returning... Nev Campbell as Sidney Prescott, Courtney Cox as Gail Weathers, former WCW <laughs> champion David Arquette as Dewey Riley, <laughs> and then of course Jamie Kennedy as Randy Meeks, Roger Jackson returns as the ominous voice on the phone, and then we have all of our new characters. Elise Neal plays Hallie. Sid's best friend and roommate. We have Timothy Oliphant, who plays Mickey. Jerry O'Connell plays Derek. Leah Schreiber plays Cotton Weary. Lori Metcalf plays Debbie Salt. Dwayne Martin plays Joel. Sarah Michelle Geller, who was in I Know What You Did Last Summer. She plays a character named Cece. Rebecca Gayhart, who was in Urban Legend, plays Lois. Portia de Rossi plays Murphy. Jada Pinkett-Smith plays Maureen Evans. Omar Epps plays Phil Stevens. And then in addition to those names, we also have appearances by Joshua Jackson, Selma Blair, Marisol Nichols, Heather Graham, Tori Spelling, and Luke Wilson. Dang. (laughs) There are quite a bit of people in this film. And so before I get into it, I do want to call out my sources. Some of the sources that I use for my research include... 
the Film Music Media channel on YouTube, Wikipedia, Scream 1 and Scream 2 Director Commentary, Soundtrack.net, and The Score Podcast. So, I know you guys know that one person, that one friend, that one freak, who when they watch a movie or TV show that they really love, they, even if they're watching it alone, even if they're watching it with a friend, they recite every word of that movie or TV show word for word out loud for the sake of they know it, they love it, and it's their own amusement, right? That movie is Scream 2 for me. <laughs> and I did that quite a bit while I rewatched this movie over and over again for research. There were even moments when I was trying to watch the movie with director commentary on, and because I was so distracted by saying all the dialogue out loud myself or just imagining what they were saying, I had to keep going back because I kept missing what Wes was saying. <laughs> and I was like, oh yeah, I'm supposed to be like tuned in. <laughs> so it happened a lot. And I will get into it. I know I talk a lot of shit about movies, and sometimes people like to do the same to movies that I like. And you know what? Fucking go ahead. In fact, I will go first. I talk shit about movies I love all the time, and Scream 2 is not perfect. Scream 2 is just as much an easy target as any other film. And so I feel like I'm kind of in the minority because I love, I love, I love Scream 2. It is the Scream movie that I love the most. It is the first Scream movie that I watched, and I didn't know what to expect. Like, I see people hating it for what it wasn't, but I love it for what it was. I even remember as a kid, I, I saw the trailer, and there's a part where Sydney answers the phone, and that sold me. That alone drew me in. And as a kid, I had my talk girl, and I would like sing songs into it, and I would record music, and I would quote movie lines into my talk girl. I fucking use that talk girl to recreate the conversations between Sydney and the killer. I use the voice changer and everything. That's hilarious. <laughs> I love it. And there was even like, in the trailer, they changed it though. Because in the trailer, she's like, what do you want? And he's like, it's time, girlfriend. Mm -hmm. But in the movie, he's like, I want you. It's showtime. But I'm like, no. To me, it'll always be It's Time Girlfriend because that's what I recorded into my talk girl and that one was funnier anyway, so fuck you. Right? I love it. I love it. <laughs> I love this movie so, so much. I even love to hear people shit on it. I regularly go back to one of my favorite podcasts. It's called We Hate Movies and all they do is talk shit about movies. I constantly go back and re-listen to their episode about Scream 2 because it is so fucking funny just to hear them tear it apart. Like, that's when you know you really love a movie. Yeah, I was going to say, that's when you know, like, you're a true fan, when you can listen to the critiques and everything and just take it and laugh alongside. Exactly, exactly. Because no movie is without flaw, you know? Every movie is going to have something that doesn't please someone. And I feel like Scream 2 is a big jumble of unpleasantries for Scream fans, I feel like people expected more. People expected something better. I love Scream 2 just the way it is. And I think that they did a great job considering the circumstances. There was a bit of an issue with production. A few issues, rather, and I'll get into those. But, you know, ultimately, it's not their fault that the script leaked onto the internet and they had to rewrite it while they were shooting. 
you would panic too. Oh, hell yeah, you would. And I want to jump on a thing you feel like, even though spring one is very near and dear to my heart, because like I told you when we did this last year, um, it is one of the very first movies that I remember seeing that was like a scary movie. Um, Scream 2 is better to me almost. Like, I love Scream 2. It's pretty much one of my, it is my favorite out of the franchise. So, and I know that people don't like sequels, but I love this sequel. Thank you. Thank you. You make me feel like I'm not alone. (laughs) No, no, not at all. Like, I mean, it's got everything. Like, it's got the parody, it's got the humor, it's got the quirky, um, like, lines, the one-liners. It's got the horror, the suspense. It's got, I, I love it. I love it. And you're right. It's not perfect what sequel is. And, yes, there were some issues. But it is seriously, like, brilliant. I love it. And it's got a star-studded cast. I mean, damn. Yeah. Literally, literally, like every five seconds, you're catching someone else that you're like, oh my God, I know her from blah, blah, blah. Like everyone is in this movie. Everyone is in this movie. (laughs) So for those of you who might be unfamiliar, this movie, Scream 2, while it did get released less than a year after Scream 1, it does take place two years after Scream 1. So that might get a little confusing. And it confused me at first, too, because in my head, uh, Sydney was, in my head, I thought she was like a sophomore in part one, you know? Yeah, yeah, that would make sense. Yeah, but apparently, like, with the timeline and how it works out, like, she was at least a junior, possibly a senior. And so now Scream 2 is set two years later, and she is in college. So Scream 2 was released on December 12th, 1997, while part one was released December 20th, 1996. So just a little over a week and a half, I think, would be the difference there. And Kevin Williamson, screenwriter, he actually had the idea for the sequel while he was still writing Scream. He said that, you know, as he was kind of wrapping up the story, he realized that there was a lot more story to it and that there was something else there. And so even if you go and watch, like, the Scream 1 director commentary, they're already kind of talking about Scream 2. (laughs) And so it, so they knew that they were on to something. And just a bit of info about the soundtrack before I move on. The Scream 2 compilation soundtrack did perform better than Scream's soundtrack. And Scream 2's album spent two years on Billboard 200, but the critics harshly critiqued the sequel's soundtrack, and most of them considered it an attempt at compensating for how underachieved the first album was. And so some of the artists included on the Scream 2 compilation soundtrack include Master P, Dave Matthews Band, Everclear, Eels, Less Than Jake, Foo Fighters, and Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds' Red Right Hand does make an appearance in this movie twice. However, the soundtrack is generally regarded, even with fans, as lacking if you will. Mm-hmm. Even I am not a terribly big fan of the soundtrack, which is why today I'm going to talk about Marco Beltrami and his score for Scream 2. Yay, score time. 
so this is a bit of a challenge. This was a bit of a challenge. Scores are always kind of extra legwork, but I did do some digging. I think I found some really cool stuff, and I picked some really good tracks, guys. So I know no one's having a spooky Halloween party this year, hopefully, but uh, I think between Frankie and I, we can definitely help you out with that playlist while you're hanging out inside. <laughs> yeah. So some background about Marco Beltrami. His role as composer for Scream 2 actually began with Scream Part 1. Scream 2 is one of seven films directed by Wes Craven that Beltrami has served as composer for, and he did do the music for all four Scream films thus far. Mm -hmm. Marco Beltrami studied piano since childhood, and he developed an appreciation for music early on in his life. He did not watch many movies when he was a kid, but the one movie that he says really left an impression on him was Fantasia. So I think that's actually kind of perfect that a composer's kind of origin story began and his exposure to film and music began with a piece of art like Fantasia, you know? Yeah, definitely. That is one of the, um, that's not the first time I've heard that, that that movie inspired other people to go about becoming like classically trained or picking up instruments or piano, like a variety of things from Fantasia. And so Marco Beltrami did attend Brown. He also attended Yale School of Music and then he attended USC Thornton School of Music. As a composer, he only had six credits to his name before he was brought on for Scream. Wes Craven's assistant at the time, Julie Pleck, went onto the internet and she started asking around, kind of networking and asking her connections. And she was looking for a new, fresh, wonderful composer. And several people actually mentioned Marco Beltrami. So Wes gave Marco the very first scene from Scream where Drew Barrymore dies. Yeah. And Wes told him like, hey, take this scene and give it a score and let's see what you got. And so Marco says he remembers walking out of the meeting saying, fuck, what am I going to do? <laughs> so he actually spent the weekend at a friend's studio. And he, Marco Beltrami, fun fact, he has never actually seen a horror film before he was introduced to Scream and told to score it. So Scream was his first exposure to horror films. And he said that that opening scene scared him. And the only way he knew how to go about it was to just score it as though he was in Casey Becker's shoes. Oh, wow. So he did write some things, but they were not orchestral. He said that he wanted to kind of lean into the fact that he didn't actually have an orchestra at his disposal. And so that kind of in turn made him much more creative because he ended up using what he did have on hand. And that was like, a few instruments at the studio, and he also used a lot of stock audio, which a lot of the Scream score is stock audio that he found. So that's pretty cool. And so uh, when he ended up bringing the scene back to Wes two days later, he was hired. And Wes really liked that the score was different and refreshing. And Marco kind of considered it to be an advantage that he was not familiar with horror because then he wasn't trying to copy anything that he had heard before. Yeah, because he didn't have any basis for that. Very cool. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So he just kind of had this fresh slate and he kind of took it and 
and made it his own without having like the influence of something like Psycho or 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 Friday the Thirteenth on his mind. Like he didn't know at all the way a horror movie would be scored, and he just kind of went about it with his own style. And through that, he just kind of developed. And he says a big part of being a composer is experimenting with sounds. And I think that that is very evident when you go back and listen to the score for Scream. Because now I really want to go back and just listen to all the score. I'm super excited to hear you cover this. Hell yeah. So, the movie Scream 2 opens two years after the first film's events. And we are at the Rialto Theater where a movie called Stab is premiering. This film is based on Gail Weathers' book from the first film, The Woodsboro Murders. And this is all about Sydney and everything that happened in Scream 1. And so attending this movie are the first characters that we meet, Maureen Evans, played by Jada Pinkett Smith, and Phil Stevens, played by Omar Epps. And so they're waiting outside the theater to go into the movie, and Maureen's kind of ragging on it. She's like, you know, I don't like scary movies. And, you know, her boyfriend's trying to egg it on because he's kind of excited about it. And the tickets were free. So, you know, free movie, win-win. And she's got these great quotes. She's amazing. She's like, no, I'm going to tell you what it is. It's a dumbass white movie about some dumbass white girls getting they white asses cut the fuck up. (laughs) And then she goes on to say, like, the horror genre is historical for excluding the African-American element. And she is absolutely right. And what's sad is that this movie is how many years old now? And she is still mm-hmm. accurate to a T. And this is one of the reasons why, another thing that we covered in Spooky Season last year, one of the reasons why I really appreciate the things that Jordan Peele is doing to the horror genre and to movies. Yeah, Get Out and Us are great examples of using those amazing black actors to be in horror because they absolutely should be included in horror. Black people are not meant to be and were never meant to be reduced to a token person of color in your film. They are not meant to be victim number three, nameless background character. No, it's insulting. They are far, far more valuable than that. And nothing accentuates that better than I think this whole scene with Jada Pinkin and Omar Epps where they're just kind of like, where she's just kind of ripping horror genres apart. Like she's picking them apart bit by bit and she's not wrong. That's the thing. She's calling it out and I love it that she does it. Yeah, I love it too. I I love that she's so vocal and you can tell that she's smart. She's rational. Like she knows, she even says like, I read my entertainment weekly. Okay. I know my shit. (laughs) So they go into the theater and this is this is one of the stupid things about this movie and even I'll say it like they're handing out costumes with the ghost face mask and cape and a fake knife like yeah why not the best call and what's even more insulting is that they say like oh these are stab souvenirs the studio sent them why the fuck okay and I'm going to go back to my, like, the We Hate Movies podcast episode about Scream 2. They talked about this. And it's like, if they made a movie about Columbine, the studio would not send you black t-shirts and camel pants so you can dress up like two white domestic terrorist motherfuckers. They would not. No. Absolutely not. So this is, that's one of the things. I was just like, I get it. The killer wears a funny costume. But you're not seriously giving it out for free at the premiere of a movie about a true story about people who were actually slaughtered. Exactly. 
in real life. No. It's just funny to me. Anyway, so Maureen and Phil, they go into this movie, and there are people in the crowd wearing the masks, wearing the capes, chasing their friends with a fake knife. They're, like, getting into it, and they're rowdy as fuck for no reason. And so... You know, they do get split up. Maureen goes to get popcorn, and she overhears that the movie is based on a true story. So when she comes back to the theater, Phil jumps out and scares her, and he's wearing the mask. And she scolds him. She's like, why are you playing? And he's just like, oh, it's just a movie. I was just, I was just messing around. And so he offers to, like, go ahead and let them leave. Like, okay, let's go see something else. And she's like, no, it's okay. We can stay, but just stop playing. So he goes to the bathroom, and she goes inside. And he goes to the bathroom, and he dies a really stupid death. <laughs> yeah. I, all I can think of is the penis. It's so, yeah, the, the scary movie parodies. It makes much more sense. But, like, he fucking goes to the bathroom, and he hears, like, murmuring in the next stall. And this is what I don't understand. He puts his ear up against the wall of the stall to hear better. Why? The bottom and the top are open. It's a yeah. stall. Like, you could, he's literally as tall as the wall. He can just peek over if he stands on the toilet. Exactly. And that would have led to a much more gruesome death in my mind because anything involving the eyeballs is. Bleh. Oh, yeah. Squeamish, right? Yes. Mm hmm. I agree. So, I just, I, I've never really liked his death. I actually. For a while, I couldn't watch it because I was like, ow, ew. But now I just can't watch it because I'm like, this is dumb. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, I still love this movie. Yeah, <laughs> so, I, I agree. So Phil dies, sprawled out on the floor, and Maureen is in the theater. She's actually getting into the film. Like, she's talking to the, like, she's talking to the screen, and she's reacting, and she's getting into it, too. And then... Someone comes and sits next to her, and it's someone wearing Phil's jacket, but also wearing ghost face mask. And she's like, she thinks it's Phil. She's like, baby, give it up. And so the figure doesn't say anything to her. He's just sitting there wearing the mask, and she's freaking out about the movie. And there comes a part where, just like in Scream 1, the killer is chasing Casey, who in the movie is played by Heather Graham, and he's reaching to stab her. And Maureen screams and she hides in what she thinks is Phil's shoulder and then when she pulls away from him she realizes that there's blood all over his jacket mm -hmm. and it's gotten all over her hands and with this realization a track from the score comes in called Stage Fright Requiem. And as she's realizing that this is blood on her hands and she's not really sure what's going on or who she's sitting next to, the killer pulls a knife and stabs her. And the music does this really great job of building the tension because the tension's rising and the violence is escalating in the film Stab, which is the movie that they're watching. And we as the audience are completely on edge. And the anticipation just keeps going up and up as you watch her. And she's slowly beginning to realize that she's not sitting next to Phil. Yeah. So then he stabs her. And the music doesn't actually do your typical thing where it grows louder or it doesn't crescendo. But rather, it keeps at a medium pace 
And so the character Maureen is in complete disbelief that she's stabbed. And we watch as she takes a moment to realize what's happened and the pain starts to settle in. So when she gets stabbed, she's shocked. But she also tries to remain calm as she, like, you watch her thought process happen. And so the music, I feel like, is really structured in such a way that we know that she's still trying to think as clearly as possible and get the fuck out of that theater. And so it reminds me a lot of what Marco said he did with Casey's score in the beginning and how he put himself in her shoes. Mm -hmm. And I feel like he took a similar approach here because Maureen is trying to be rational, trying to be smart and proactive. And again, it's like we can hear her thought process as she's realizing what's happening. So she does get up and she tries to get away, but he comes after her and he stabs her again and again. And all the people in the theater, they think that it's part of an act. They think that they got like a stunt guy and an actress to act out the movie while it was playing. So the patrons in the theater are actually egging him on and they're like shouting for him to kill her and stab her. And then he stabs her one more time, and then he lets go, and he disappears. And when he lets her go, that's when these really sorrowful vocals come in, and we are now watching a tragedy. sounds very grand because there's a lot of instruments that come in at once. All these people who were watching this fictitious quote-unquote murder on screen and in actuality they're watching a murder happen in real life and they are not realizing the magnitude and the emotion and just the heaviness that comes with murder and death until it's right in front of them. Yeah. And so you know, when we as an audience go to a movie theater, we're trying to escape our world. We're trying to escape our reality and enter a different one. But in this case, reality interrupted that. And so we see Maureen and she's she's all bloody. She's dying and she manages to make it to the front of the theater and she climbs up onto the stage underneath the screen and she's up against the, the screen where the movie is being projected. And she just, she stands up and she screams. And everyone realizes that this is not fake. And a lot of the people start taking their masks off and they're completely shocked. And then she collapses in front of them and dies in the movie theater. death was always so sad to me like it had very funny parts but then I was like oh my god what a way to die because they didn't even realize like you said that it was real and they made fun of it almost like someone even shouts out like sit down you know like because she's in the way like it it makes me very sad because no one takes her serious and no one takes her death serious. And that's just a sad way for me to um, envision dying for myself. Yeah. And it makes me sad because it's like 
she didn't even want to be here. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Don't do things you don't want to do. Exactly. Exactly. No matter how free the boyfriend's tickets are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so this is just, again, Wes Craven strikes again, shocks the audience yet again. And I think one of the more interesting aspects of this is how Jada Pinkett's character straight up calls out the horror genre for uh, underutilizing black men and women in film. And so we think, we get the impression that like, oh, okay, well, this is a sequel. It's going to be different. Now that they know we're expecting the black character to die, they probably won't kill them. And then they kill them. So even the things that they called out, even the things that are like, the kind of winks at the camera that they make, even those are not safe because you just don't know what they're going to do. So so that surprise opening brings us into our opening credits. And just like the Scream 1, there really aren't any opening credits. We just see the title card and then nothing else after that. Because again, Wes wanted it to appear as much like real life as possible. And believe it or not, real life doesn't have opening and closing credits. <laughs> Deep. So um, some fun facts about the uh, opening. Wes Craven really loved the idea of opening the film in a place of drama and setting the stage at a movie theater. He says he also wanted to give the audience a glance at ourselves as we watch a movie. So obviously they were watching a movie within a movie and we're watching them watch a movie within a movie. So <laughs> you get pretty meta after a while. And even so, like, even further in the film, we go on to learn that not only is Sydney a theater major, but she's also the lead in an upcoming play. And so mid-movie, we do see her rehearse a scene on stage. And then finally, spoiler alert, toward the end, the climax and all the final fights take place on the college theater stage. So he really liked having that beginning, middle, end, uh, and that kind of that similar theme throughout where everything kind of happens in the theater. Very well thought out. The opening scene took three days to film. The theater was packed with extras and this is what led to the script being leaked onto the internet. Now the internet, not everybody had access to the internet back in 1997. There weren't any smartphones, there wasn't even social media, not everybody had a computer. And so it's, it sucks that, you know, someone who did have access to all that happened to snag the script and scanned it and put it out on the internet, spoiling for everybody who found it, spoiling it for everybody who happened to have an internet connection and who happened to stumble upon it one day. And so because of this, they not only learned like they really needed to up the security when it came to big mob scenes, but also they ended up having to rewrite the film, starting with everything after the opening 12 minutes. So I did want to ask you about that because when they were writing, Kevin kept the actual identity of the killer a secret. So that's why that was never leaked, right? This is where it gets a little confusing. Um, I, When I was growing up and I learned all the backstage stuff about this film, I had read that that the last like 15 pages of the script were missing from everyone's copy and I also read that the cast placed bets on who the killer was and that the only people who knew who the killers were were the ones who got the last 15 pages of the script 
when it came time to shoot the scenes. Oh, wow. <laughs> so they don't get it. They didn't get it ahead of time at all. And that's because, and that, and from what I'm understanding uh, with my research, and I hope I'm not wrong. I really did try to delve in. But from what I'm understanding, the script with the 15 pages missing and the blacked out pages, that was what they ended up with. Whereas the original script, spoilers, um, well, I guess it's a fun fact because it didn't work out that way. In the original script, Sydney's boyfriend Derek and Sydney's best friend Hallie were not only lovers, but they were also the killers. Ooh. It would have been a very different, very interesting take. Um, so from what, I, from what I could understand and from what I read and from what Wes Craven was saying on commentary, the ending with Hallie and Derek being the killers is the one that leaked. And so after that, they were just constantly revising the script. There was even a screenshot of like the cover, the cover page of the script. And it was, it was like listed with all the different dates that it was revised, revised again, revised again, revised again, like at least 10 times at wow. least. And the filmmakers were not thrilled about their script leaking online. And then they had to scramble to rewrite it, even though, and this is another point that We Hate Movies made. It's like, well, not very many people had the internet, so what, 500 people read a leaked script? <laughs> because it would take forever to send it, right? Or fax it or print it. That's true, yeah. And then if you think about uploading it, like, the internet speed was trash back then. So, I mean, yeah. how much of it did they really even get to truly read? Exactly. Like, I'm wondering, like, would it really have been that detrimental? if you had just kept going with the original script. But I actually kind of like the way Scream 2 turned out. So I, I mean, I'm not going to say it was a blessing in disguise. It's still a shitty thing to do, but everything happens for a reason, right? Very true, very true. <laughs> so after the opening scene, we are at Windsor College, and Sydney is a student there in Ohio for the sake of the plot. And we see her again for the first time, and she gets a prank call from Corey Gillis, 5550176. Yes, <laughs> Sydney has caller ID now. <laughs> Smart girl. And so as she's getting ready for the day, she turns on TV. She realizes that Cotton Weary is on TV, and Cotton Weary is the man that she wrongfully accused of raping and murdering her mother in the first film. And because Billy and Stu admitted to killing her, Cotton Weary is now a free man, but Sydney still has like weird feelings toward him because he was having an affair with her mom. Yeah. And for a long time, she did think that he killed her mom. So even though he was, you know, fully exonerated, there is still that weirdness, that tension. Like, how do you, how do you even act around or towards someone that you once accused of murder and then they, they weren't the killer, you know? Right, and I mean, I know it's not equal, like, to say, well, you know, you are the reason, like, my parents were having issues, like, led to the infidelity, led to her, you know, making mistakes or choices or whatever she did, but I don't, I don't know if I would be able to ever be, like, okay with that person, you know what I mean? Exactly. I feel like there would at least, not necessarily, like, the anger about, like, the murder, obviously, but I think that the resentment would still be there. Very much so. And honestly, I don't even think I would apologize for, like, thinking that you murdered my mom. Like, I'm not going to apologize for that. That was my thought. 
I mean, that's true too. And on top of that, like everything pointed to him. What, I mean, what could she do? She, she went with what she knew. Yes. Agreed. You know, and even, and even in the first movie, she claims she saw him leave. So, I mean, she thought she knew what she saw and she was wrong. People are wrong all the time. So, uh, so that's Sydney now. So Sydney is kind of reestablished. She's got her new hair. She's got her new friends. But then uh, the news story comes on about the two students. And turns out Maureen and Phil were students at Windsor College, and they were both seniors, and they are the ones that were murdered at the Rialto the night before. So Sydney hears about this, and she immediately wants to talk to Randy. Mm-hmm. And then we go into my favorite scene in the whole film, and this is probably one of the biggest reasons why I love this movie. Randy's film theory class i fucking love this scene it's so short it's so fucking sweet though and it is pretty much a conversation that i would have with any of my friends like i would sit down and be like okay name a sequel that surpasses its original go and i do that shit i do that shit all the fucking time and at least i did when i could see my friends so Uh. (laughs) (laughs) so this is a cool scene because randy is in class and you can kind of tell that the topic of discussion, this obviously wasn't part of the curriculum, but the topic of discussion did come up. I want to say this was probably one of those situations where the professor was like, okay, this is a special circumstance. Do we want to talk about what happened last night? Da, 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 da. And so they're talking about the murder at the theater. And some of the students are arguing that the movies are directly responsible for people committing violence and acts of crime. And then other people, like Sarah Michelle Gellar's character, is saying, like, no, movies are not responsible for our actions. Right. And so she's right, by the way, guys. I, I don't care what you say. If you saw a movie and you got inspired, the problem was you all along. <laughs> <laughs> so um, the, this is when they're talking about Stab, and this is when we meet Mickey. Mm, mm, mm. Hmm. I love timothy oliphant i concur Mm, isn't he just delicious like i loved him in justified and i loved him in santa clarita diet and i get him confused with some other actor i know it's not him but i always just like glance and um i get him confused who's the other actor because i i feel like i used to get him confused with people too um fergie's husband i think Josh Dunham? Yes. Yes. I agree. Okay, I'm glad I'm not the only one who feels that way. Um, And I mean, it's not like once I like really look, then it's like, oh, yeah, they're clearly different people. But if I'm just glancing really quickly, it's it's like, wait, who's that? Wait, what movie was he in? (laughs) Yeah. Oh, wait, hang on. Is it Josh Dumel? Am I getting the name wrong? Oh, my God, I don't even know. The I don't white care. Guy, white who looks like him. The guy who looks like Timothy Oliphant, but like discounted. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Walmart version. Yes. <laughs> I'm sorry. But that's just how beautiful Timothy Oliphant is to me. I've been in love with him since this film. I love him. Yes. But, but yes, I do agree with you. Whoever that guy is, Josh, whatever his name, they do have a similar facial structure and tend to have similar facial like hair. Yes. Agreed. Yes, I can understand why that, yeah, they do look a lot alike. This is the movie that I think of when I think of Timothy Oliphant. That's, that's just me. I mean, he was kind of scrawny and puny, and he, 
But he was, mm, he was good and justified. I fucking love that show. I've heard great things. I need to check that out. Yes, definitely check it out. While they're having the discussion, Mickey is the one who says it's a classic case of life imitating art, imitating life. But Randy doesn't really agree with that. And so the professor is saying, like, oh, are you suggesting that someone is trying to make a real-life sequel? And Randy says, who would want to do that? Sequels suck. Mm. <laughs> and everyone's like, oh, like they all groan because they think he's wrong. He's like, oh, no, please, please, by definition alone, they're inferior films. And Mickey's like, it's bullshit generalization. Many sequels have surpassed their original. And so they start talking about what sequel has surpassed its original. And they come up with some really interesting answers. Aliens, Terminator 2, House 2, the second story. <laughs> and then finally, The Godfather, part 2. Yeah. So um, I even think that this scene was a favorite for Wes and the filmmakers because during the commentary, nobody spoke during this scene. Really? Yeah. So, like, Wes, and Wes did the commentary with um, one of the editors, and then I, I can't remember. I think it was one of the producers. Three different people. Nobody spoke during this entire, like, wow. three-minute scene. And I was like, they must love it just like I do. They're so captivated. Yeah, <laughs> but anyway, so... Sydney comes to meet Randy. She's like, it's happening again. He's like, no, it's not. Plenty of people get robbed, shot, maimed, murdered. You know, the multiplex is a very dangerous place to be these days. And she's like, you know what happened in Woodsboro, Randy. You can't ignore it. And this is when we meet Derek. And Derek is Sydney's boyfriend. And Randy's kind of jealous because he still has a crush on her. So, you know, he doesn't really like watching them kiss. <laughs> Poor Randy. And so immediately after this scene, we cut to a nice long, like a nice wide shot rather of the campus. And it is swarming with news vans, cops. And of course, all the students are trying to go about their daily lives, but you just see a bunch of like news reporters and cop cars all over the place, basically overwhelming the campus. And this brings in a score track called Trouble in Woodsboro. This actually first appeared in Scream 1, and it appeared in a very similar scene. So in Scream 1, when we see Sydney's high school for the first time, and it's the day after Casey has been murdered, and then we sweep down and we see all the cops and the news reporters, same thing here. We're seeing the same thing at the college, and basically, like, the reporters and the cops have basically overtaken the lawn and the streets, and they are everywhere. And so among them, we do see Sydney walking with Randy and Derek and Mickey and Hallie. And they're just kind of looking around and you can kind of tell that it's like deja vu all over again. And so the beginning of this track is very reminiscent, I think, of like a bomb dropping. And we hear like this bong like four different times. And we see that Sydney's college has become eerily similar to the way her high school looked in Scream 1. And so this track really offers a certain heaviness as far as the emotions go. Now, these events are not only literally overwhelming the campus with coverage, but we also sense the trauma that Sydney has gone through. And if you think back, this is the third time that news coverage and police have invaded her space. 
once two years ago with the with the movie Scream, and then once a year prior to that when her mom was killed. Mm-hmm. So these realizations and these emotions really hit hard with this score in this scene because it really is like deja vu, and it's horrifying. And also with this score, we welcome back into the film Gail Weathers. So she comes back. She's awesome. Her hair is awesome. And so this also kind of gives us a reintroduction to Gail. And so when we caught our first glimpse of Gail in Scream, she was actually reporting from the high school and this score was playing. So in a way, I kind of start to hear this as Gail's theme because wherever the bomb drops is where she's going to go. Ooh, I like that connection. (laughs) And so sure enough, with like no hesitation, someone got murdered and Gail showed up and she's business as usual. And she, um, and you can tell that not much has changed as far as her personality goes. So she's on the phone with someone and they're telling her like, yeah, they're thinking about pulling the movie. And she's like, what? They'd be stupid to pull this movie. They're going to break box office records. And so she hangs up with the person and she goes over to her news van. And this is where she meets her new cameraman, Joel. And so she's not exactly warm to him at first, but she asks him about his experience. And he says that he shot the bingo finals. I almost won an award for that. And so she tells him that she's going to point and he's going to shoot. And as long as he can keep up with her, they will get along just fine. And so he's really enthusiastic to work with her. And as they're kind of talking and meeting each other, we see a woman in the background and she's kind of staring at Gail and lurking and she kind of can't be ignored. (laughs) And um, after scoring Scream, many of Marco Beltrami's opportunities came with horror films. And he has been asked if he worries about being typecasted as the horror score guy. But Marco states that his music does not really favor one particular style or genre. And because he wasn't well-versed in horror films, he wasn't familiar with horror scene cliches and horror score cliches. And so that, again, allowed him to kind of take his own route in using different sounds. And so he believes that this is why some of his scores have been so successful. And so I love that they took a a track from the first film and implemented it into here absolutely i was just gonna say that continuity is like amazing yeah yeah exactly and kind of going back to what i said like it it does reintroduce gail as soon as that music starts playing you realize like just the severity of this situation and just how you know disturbing it can be for someone like sydney who is gonna have to live through it all over again exactly And like you said, it brings up like that whole deja vu. It takes us back to scream, to that moment. And it brings back that whole array of emotions that we were feeling then and we're feeling them again. And it's just, it's, it's great. It was very well done. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And so it's kind of like, it's kind of like emotion by association. Like when you hear a certain song that triggers you and certain feelings come back with it. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, this is this is exactly that for this film. And so uh, the woman approaches Gail, and she says her name is Debbie Salt, and she really admires Gail, and she starts kissing her ass. And Gail's like, oh, I, yeah, I thought you looked familiar, because Debbie says that she, she saw her seminar last year, and 
So Debbie tries to get a quote for her story, and Gail just is kind of fed up with all the ass-kissing. So she just says, okay, begin quote. Your flattering remarks are both desperate and obvious. (laughs) (laughs) And I fucking love Gail. I feel like sometimes I'm a lot like Gail. Sometimes I can snap like Gail. So as a kid, I, I could understand why she was so unlikable. But as an adult, I realized, like, hey, we could be best friends. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I love it. So they have a press conference, and Gail's asking all these questions, and this is when Randy sees Gail, and he's like, hey, Sydney, it's Gail Weathers. And so they're watching from afar as the press conference is going on and the cops are answering questions. And while this is going on, two of the sorority girls, uh, Lois and Murphy, played by Portia de Rossi and Rebecca Gayhart, They show up, and they're trying to recruit Sid, and they want her to be part of the sorority, and they're inviting her to the mixer. She tries to say no, but Hallie makes her say yes. And so, you know, she's Sydney. you can kind of tell, like, Sydney wears her dark colors and her dark lipstick, and she just kind of wants to be in her bubble. But the sorority girls are very pastel, bright, and, like, spunky, and so they're so opposite of Sid right now. So, but it's funny to see that, like, she really does kind of want to make this new life for herself. And she is exploring all options, I guess. Right. <laughs> but she's definitely not a typical sorority girl. And so she's not terribly crazy about joining it. As they're kind of sitting there and they're watching the press conference and everything, Sydney realizes that there's someone else on campus that she recognizes. And she gets up and doesn't say anything to her friends. And she just kind of takes off. And they're like, hey, who's that? And then we see Dewey. And he's back. And it's awesome. And our hearts flutter because it's David Arquette. And the song matches that. Like, there's a score right there, right? Where it's like the music matches, like, your heart being so happy to see him. Yes. And that track is called Brothers. And so the track starts, and yes, it is such a it's such a warm, welcoming score that accompanies Dewey, and it's a really simple track, and it reintroduces this character. And so, in the midst of all this chaos that we've seen so far, Dewey and this music are so comforting. And so, at this point, we've caught up with Sydney, and she's in this whole new world, new school, new friends, but she still seems to have, like, that wall up, like I said. And so, it's only when she sees Dewey that she really smiles for the first time, and her eyes, like, disappear into her cheeks because she's so happy to see him. And so, it kind of, it kind of reminds you that while these new experiences can be an adventure for her, Sometimes a visitor from the past is really all you need. And you see that on Sydney's face that, you know, up until Dewey showed up, she was scared of what was happening and she was being paranoid and she was like worrying that it was all going to start again. But then as soon as she sees Dewey, all that kind of fear and uncertainty really melts away with the score. Absolutely. And the score does such a good job of like, absolutely matching that like it really does 100% mirror how you're feeling like if you put yourself in Sid's shoes 
like thinking about all the chaos that's going on, all of the, like you found out these two people were murdered and it's like, oh my God, it's starting again. And then you see that one person who's like that calm for you. Exactly. Exactly. And it's, it's almost therapeutic too, because, you know, she only has so many old friends from Woodsboro in her life. And so it's, it's so sweet that, and so Dewey shows up and so they hug and she's like, what are you doing here? And he's like, oh, I heard I was worried about you. So I got on a plane and he asked her if they can talk. And so she's like, yeah. So they go and step aside to talk. And so throughout the whole scene where, where she saw him again and they hugged, Again, that was a track called Brothers. However, this was not written or composed by Marco Beltrami at all. Oh, wow. So there are some fun facts ahead. This track I always thought was called Dewey's Theme. Like when Scream fans discuss it, they talk about it and refer to it as Dewey's Theme. Even the filmmakers on the commentary called it Dewey's Theme. Because it's so closely associated to and captures Dewey perfectly. And so when I approached the score, because I obviously wanted to include this track because it's Dewey's theme, um, I actually went and looked and I was like, wait a minute, there's not even a track called Dewey's theme. It, it doesn't exist. Wow. So then I figured out why. This piece of music was written for and featured in the 1996 action film Broken Arrow. Have you seen that? Okay. I've not seen all of it, no. I've never actually even heard of it until I did this research. Uh, So apparently, for those unfamiliar, like myself, it does star John Travolta and Christian Slater, so you know it's the 90s. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And the original score for Broken Arrow was composed by Hans Zimmer. I knew, I just, I knew it. I knew it was going to be him. The only reason I know this movie is because my mother is obsessed with John Travolta. That is so cute. <laughs> I love your mom. <laughs> I love her. Um, and that's the only reason. But again, I couldn't even tell you like the premise or the synopsis or anything. Like I very vaguely remember her talking about it because that was just something that like I remember her watching movies growing up also um and I remember literally seeing every movie John Travolta's been in so I know I've seen it I just couldn't tell you anything about it and to be fair when people bring up John Travolta I don't think Broken Arrow is one of the 10 movies that they immediately think of so that's a fair statement you know yeah I can think of 10 that are not (laughs) Broken Arrow at all. (laughs) So I think, you know, I think this might be one of the more, not necessarily obscure, but like maybe it doesn't have as as hard of a following as some of the other classics that Travolta has been a part of. Yeah, that's a good point. Yeah. So, but I'm with you there. Like, I don't, I don't even know. I didn't even, I, I tried to read about the premise, something about, nuclear weapon military weapons or something i just i it lost me it lost me um, but this track as a whole is really lovely and i really do love the section that they use to underscore dewey it is a much longer track it's a little over seven minutes long so it will be on the playlist but there's only a certain section that they reserve for when dewey is on screen and again it's such a simple theme 
but it's perfect for him because at times it does sound a little childish and it does sound really innocent and maybe a little bit clumsy. And so the gentle instruments kind of remind you of like, in my opinion, they kind of sound like a child xylophone, you know, those little toy xylophones that every kid has. Yeah. There are sounds in this track that remind me of that. And it kind of brings out Dewey's boyish charm and his playfulness and his innocence. He does have his silly moments, but you can still take him seriously thereafter. And so Dewey is a character with only good intentions. And the music accentuates that because in the end he's, you know, yeah, he was a cop and yeah, his sister was a victim. But all in all, he's really just a friend who wants to be there to help. Agreed. Some things I learned about Hans Zimmer, who did write and compose this piece of music. Hopefully his name sounds familiar to you guys because he has been around for decades. <laughs> and he has lent his music to productions such as Thelma and Louise, A League of Their Own, The Lion King, Gladiator, Pearl Harbor, and The Ring, just to name a few. There's so many. That man has done so much. There are so many. Guys, if you go to his IMDb page, you will be scrolling for the length of a CVS receipt because it is fucking long. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so Hans Zimmer has been quoted as saying that his writing tends to be done away from musical instruments. He says it begins in his head when he's alone. And then he brings his ideas to the instruments and he starts to experiment with the sounds. In interviews regarding the use of brothers in Scream 2, Marco Beltrami has said that he himself is actually pretty possessive. And so there was actually a piece of music written to be Dewey's theme that he wrote. However, the filmmakers chose not to use it in the final cut of Scream 2. Brothers was originally meant to be a temporary track, just kind of like a placeholder until they found a piece of music that fit. Right. But ultimately, it was decided that the Hans Zimmer piece fit really well, which I think we can agree. Totally. So Marco was not thrilled about this at all. Wow. At all. And he actually did a very candid interview after the movie came out where they asked him about the temp score, which is, that's what they call it, a temp score. They asked him about it. And he did not hold back about how he felt. He was very raw and very honest. So honest, he got a call from the producer Scream 2. And they were like, what the hell? Why are you saying all this? This is like, this is dirty laundry that you, you know, da 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 da. They were not happy with him being so honest about his feelings. And they told him, you will not work with us again. Oh, really? It did work out. He did work on Scream 3 and 4, so they were full of shit. Um, but but it, it, he says that it did open his eyes to the fact that, you know, as a composer, as a musician, once you do your work, you kind of have to let it go because it's in someone else's hands and someone else is in the driver's seat. That is very true. And we've seen that before in some of the other movies that we've talked about where they may have put in different voices. I mean, even with Rocky. You're absolutely right how, how uh, Trevor White was the voice for Rocky Horror. You're right. And this even also reminded me of when I covered Goodfellas and the author of Goodfellas 
he straight up said, like, yeah, I know they made changes to the book. I know they had to change it for the movie. And ultimately, he took it as a silver lining that, like, hey, they're making a movie about my book. Yeah. They can do whatever they want. Yeah, I remember you saying that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so this was, this I feel like was a similar mentality. Where like, Marco went in and did his job. Marco went in and got paid. If they don't use his music, he still sleeps at night. Right, it's not to get off his back because he's still getting paid, you know? Like, he still got paid for the full project, whether they chose to go with that one or not. Exactly, exactly. And I think that the music plus Dewey is another major reason why I love Scream 2 so much. And a lot of it has to do with David Arquette. You know, not only do I admire his passion for wrestling, but I also really adore him as an actor. You know, in Scream, he was a secondary character. He was always disappearing and reappearing because they wanted you to think he was a potential suspect. Right. But in Scream 2, he arrives, and it's nothing but good intentions. And while they do also write him as someone who is conveniently missing sometimes, he did also get to develop further as a character in Scream 2. And, you know, we get to see him get frustrated, and he gets scared and confused, serious and sweet. And we get to know him better than just being Tatum's dorky older brother who was the deputy of Woodsboro. Right, agreed. <laughs> and so um, David Arquette, I think, really brings a heart to this character that I don't think any other actor would have been able to do. And he's someone that you see springing into action one moment and then he's holding your hand the next. The character Dewey was originally written as a big, buff, muscular guy. But when David Arquette read the part for Scream, he says that he interpreted Dewey in a very different way. And they actually ended up really liking it because they casted him. And so, you know, there's a very gentle, empathetic side of Dewey. But he's also that guy who runs into the burning building, even if he knows that it's putting him in danger, too. Selfless. Yeah, exactly. Dewey's so sweet. Um <laughs> We transition from that scene and we go to Dewey and Sydney just a few moments later and they're in a gazebo together and they're kind of like off away from all the chaos and away from all the hubbub and there's not as big of a crowd where they are. And so they're sitting there and they're talking and she's updating him on her life and she's saying that she's dating someone who doesn't seem to have any psychotic tendencies and she's actually, uh, since she's a theater major, she's actually starring in a play and they open in two days. And so she's, you know, she's really excited about like her new life and she has new friends and Dewey's really happy for her too. But then he says that, you know, he is really worried about her. And with the concern comes in a new score track. This one, we go back to Marco Beltrami's work, <laughs> um, and we go into a track called Deputy for a Friend. And this is where Dewey kind of turns serious, and so they go from having this lighthearted catch-up conversation to... Dewey looks at her and he says, if there is some psycho trying to follow in Billy Loomis's footsteps, you probably already know him or her or them. Mm. And the music does a really good job of following the lines of suspicion because when he tells her that and he takes those beats between each word, 
the music kind of follows the tension and it goes higher and higher and the pitch goes higher and higher as his suspicions grow. And it kind of makes you think that any and all possibilities are available and none are less scary than the last. You really don't know who the killer is and she very likely knows them as a human Mm -hmm. by now. Yeah. So that's really horrifying. You know, they say like kind of that whole friends close, enemies closer kind of thing and what she doesn't realize is that they're kind of both in the same. Mm-hmm. And that's a really scary notion because your friend might be trying to kill you. <laughs> um, and so she kind of gets up and she's, you know, she's frustrated because she knows this. She, He's not telling her anything she hasn't already thought of herself. And undoubtedly, the past two years, she must have been kind of side-eyeing some of these new people for a while because she just doesn't know who to trust. Right, questioning your intentions. Exactly. And I think that Sydney's trauma is a really relatable human reaction. I think that we all as humans have been jilted. I think all of us have been wronged or betrayed. Uh, Hopefully not to the extent of your boyfriend killing all your friends and your mom. But I think that we all have that taste of something bad happened once and I really don't want it to happen again. And so I'm going to cut myself off or I'm going to limit my social, like social life, you know. And um, I think that Sydney's character is, is very understandable in Scream 2. And that's another reason why I love it is because Scream 1, we kind of had to learn her immediately. Scream 2, we know her backstory. We know what she's been through. We saw it ourselves. And now we're seeing the toll that it took on her. Like, she has trust issues now. She she uh, she kind of questions her relationships now. That's shitty. That, that sucks. Yeah, who wouldn't, given what she went through, though? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so she tells Dewey, like, you know, what am I supposed to do? Crawl under a rock? And he just kind of, he doesn't really know what to tell her because this is a scary situation so he says he says just stay alert he says he's going to talk to the local police and he says if she doesn't mind that he's going to stick around and make sure that she's safe and she's like yeah i'd be honored <laughs> and it's it's such a sweet like moment between the two and the music becomes a lot more gentle when she asks what is she supposed to do And you can tell that Dewey doesn't even really know what to tell her, but they're both equally worried about it. And Dewey's concern is worn on his face. And you can tell how much he cares about her and wants to protect her. And again, this makes me go back to thinking about how Dewey was originally written and if he had been a big, buff, muscular guy. And I just think it would have played differently. And I like the way David Arquette interpreted Dewey. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I can't imagine him being any other form of himself, especially for these sweet moments, these reassuring moments to Sid, um, and then also kind of like as that bigger brother figure, because that's how he comes off to me in this scene. And again, going back to part one, we know that Dewey's little sister was murdered. 
and his little sister's best friend was Sydney. And so in a way, like Dewey is cherishing this friendship he has with Sydney because it's his way of holding on to the memories of his little sister and protecting the ones that his little sister cared about. And because they meant a lot to Tatum, she means a lot to him. I'm so glad that they let Dewey survive in part one because he almost didn't. <laughs> Thank God he lived. <laughs> and uh, oh, and Dewey does walk with a limp in Scream Two, and it's because he was stabbed in part one. There was a severed nerve in his back, and so that's why he's kind of like he's not paralyzed, but you know he he's got limited motion in his right arm, and he limps a little. So it's that consistency, that storyline, you gotta love it. Exactly. And they studied. They had to make sure. They were like, oh, yeah, we made him walk with a limp, but we had first we had to study the, the medical reason as to why he would have a limp. <laughs> so it's pretty accurate. One other thing that I wanted to mention about Marco Beltrami is that he has said in interviews that before he scores a film, he really likes to watch the complete cut by himself, away from everyone else, not even with the director, because even, even watching with a director and they kind of look at you and they're probably already pressuring you and it's already kind of weighing down on the composer to write something amazing. So he prefers to watch the films by himself and then he says he likes to get a feel for the emotional heaviness of the scenes and then, and so then he can translate them into music. He says that he approaches his projects as though they are puzzles. I really love what he did here with Deputy for a Friend. It, it really does cover a wide range of emotions. Like there's the uncertainty, there's the worry, there's the paranoia, but then there's also like the gentle, the calm, the comforting that comes with Dewey and his words and his presence. And so again, I just love to gush over David Arquette's character. And I, you know, Sydney is my definitive final girl. So... <laughs> Um, this scene always kind of makes me tear up a little because I just think it's so sweet and everyone should have a friend like Dewey. For sure. We've just been reintroduced to Dewey and him and Sydney have caught up and one thing that I love about that scene is that if you watch really closely in the background, Derek is actually staring at them. Have you ever noticed that? Oh my god, I haven't. Now I'm going to have to go back and watch it again. Yes, please go back and watch it because right after Dewey leaves... Sydney like walks out of the gazebo and her friends are already right there. So they ended up like heading over toward them. And if you watch her and Dewey talking at the table, you can see like Mickey and Hallie and Derek coming toward them and Randy too. So it's interesting when they kind of hang back a bit, but you see Derek very clearly like staring over his shoulder at them because he still doesn't know who Dewey is, right? Right, right. So I always thought that was kind of interesting. And that's one of the fun things about this movie is that like Jerry O'Connell plays Derek in such a way that like he's so sweet, but like suspiciously so like a too good a guy. Yes. Yes. Like what's your catch? Like what do you what's your real reason? You know? Yes, exactly. Like nobody is that perfect. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And even Tatum. Yes, I Tatum in part one she was like I knew there had to be something about Billy he's just too perfect oh yeah he was a psychopath <laughs> <laughs> they typically are right like have we learned nothing from psychopath history I've learned plenty from my own personal life <laughs> anyway so 
<laughs> if they're not psychopaths, they're fucking assholes. <laughs> I mean, you have a point. <laughs> Frankie's got to hit out on certain people from my past. Hey, I sure do. Come at me. <laughs> mm-hmm. Frankie is ready. Okay, so Dewey takes off. Sid rejoins her friends. And this is when they're kind of like, hey, are you okay? Who is that? She's like, oh, it's an old friend. And then Gail walks up on her. And she's like, hi, Sydney. I was hoping to get a few words with you. And out of nowhere, Cotton Weary pops up. And this was all arranged by Gail to surprise Sydney and then go live with her reaction. It is such a shitty thing to do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, so shitty. And, of course, like, Cotton is kind of, he's not necessarily reveling in his fame, quote-unquote, but he is really eager to get his name out there, let everyone know he's a nice guy, and if he can make some money and get a little famous on top of that, that would be cool, too. But he wants everyone to know that he is innocent, definitively innocent. Right. And this is one of the, another reason why I really love Scream 2. Liev Schreiber gets screen time. (laughs) Finally. Do you remember how quick he was on screen in in Scream 1? It was like less than a minute, wasn't it? Like if you put it all together? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because all you just see him getting in a cop car on TV. No lines. Yeah. No nothing. That's like putting Christian Bale in a movie and he appears for 30 seconds and doesn't speak. Right. And that was one thing that was always, and I know this is making me sound like a a horrible movie watcher, but I hate when they do that because it's so hard for my mind to like keep up with everything because I forget like, oh yeah, because you had that short appearance, you were actually in the movie and kind of important, you know, to the whole plot. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yes, exactly. A crucial moment and, and we barely saw you. Yeah, and so that's what, I mean, I know it's put there for a reason, but me as, you know, just a watcher who has, like, tons of things going on in my mind because, you know, I don't know what's wrong with my mind, it's so hard for me to keep up with things like that. Like, I need them to have at least five minutes. I need, you know, advocating for those one-liners, non-liners, those important actors who are crucial to the plot. Like, let's normalize that. Especially someone like Leah Schreiber, who is just amazing in everything he appears in. Yes, agreed. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually kind of adore Cotton. He is kind of weird. He's kind of media hungry and, and you know, borderline possibly threatening. But, <laughs> you know, he has his charming moments. He also has his weird moments. But sometimes he seems like a suspect. But he's actually also really amusing to watch. <laughs> completely agreed yes like even in screen two i was like oh he's he, it's him it's him he's back at it again he wants to be famous and then i'm like no it's not him it's not he's just weird <laughs> right right and i think that his being so suspicious is partially due to all the rewrites because there are certain scenes that are written and it's like cotton would only be there if he was the killer and another tidbit about the original script Cotton Weary was one of the killers. He wasn't in cahoots with Derek and Hallie, but he was trying to kill Sydney. Wow. For ruining his life or? I Yeah, I want to say for like ruining his life and for putting him away and just kind of like a very Cape Fear kind of thing, I guess. Yeah, that makes sense. I can buy that. Actually, also in the original script, Dewey, Cotton, and Sydney all died. Yeah. That'd be, wait, say that again? 
Yeah, the original script, the one where Hallie and Derek are the killers together and then Cotton wants to kill Sid. That script involved Sidney, Dewey, and Cotton all dying at the end. What the hell? I needed to read Pete because I was like, wait, you certainly didn't say that. You did. <laughs> Wouldn't that be fucking bizarre? Like, what? There would, would there have been a screen three? There wouldn't have been. That's obviously why there was a rewrite. I mean, as well as the leakage, or maybe they were like, not a coincidence? Maybe somebody realized there's more to this story. Let's leak it because then they'll have to change it. Oh, I see. So it was a conspiracy against it. Yeah, you know I love conspiracy theories. I like this theory. <laughs> You're on to something here. Right? You know what I mean? Because, I mean, Scream was where it was at in the 90s. And for you to just kill off something that could easily be a trilogy and then, you know, a group of four. I don't know what it's called when you have four movies. A uh, saga franchise something, a series. <laughs> there we go, saga. A saga. You can't just end it. It was too amazing. Yeah. Whoever did that, thank you. <laughs> I wonder who that person... I mean, I, I'm guessing it had to be multiple people at the same time. Because it was a, a crowded theater full of extras. But I wonder how they feel about... Do they feel guilty? Maybe. If you're out there and you're listening, person who leaked the script of Scream 2, <laughs> hit us up. Talk to us. I want to talk to you. Exactly. Kind of want to thank you, too. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> thank you, thank you. So, anyway, um, little little tangent there. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, no, it, no, it's all good. It all started with Liev Schreiber, who was just fucking sex on a stick. And he's so handsome in this movie. Oh, God, yeah. He really is. So handsome. Okay, so they've snuck up on Sydney. Sydney's pissed. Rightfully so. And Cotton is just eating up the camera and he's like, oh, I just, you know, I, I want to start over and, you know, focus on my new life and stuff like that, just like you. Sydney slaps Gail, like really good too. And that's when Cotton realizes that this was not properly arranged, that Gail did not tell Sydney in advance and he was told that she was. So he's upset with Gail because he's like, you promised me 15 minutes. And she's like, you'll get your 15 minutes when I get my goddamn interview. Yeah. So <laughs> Gail is a cold bitch and she has not changed at all. Not at all. And another thing I love uh, about the background of this, the whole time, from the moment Gail sneaks up on Sydney, I love watching Mickey's facial expressions right <laughs> behind her because he's like, he looks really smug and then he looks really surprised when Cotton shows up. And then the way he reacts when she slaps her, yes. <laughs> so good. He's so hilarious. I love his presence in this scene. That's one of my favorite scenes because I just remember her being like, you bitch. <laughs> yes. And it was just so, it was just, it was perfect. And it was nice to see Sydney like, you know, um, more mature, I guess, more outspoken. It's a big difference from her in Scream. Yeah, definitely. I feel like in Scream, she, I think she was doing her best to avoid all that attention mm -hmm. and stuff, but now that it was all happening again and Gail was the last thing she needed, yeah, I think she was right to just go off the way she did. Yeah, she was not expecting it. After this, Sydney and her friends walk off, Gail takes off, and her cameraman follows her, and this is when she runs into Dewey. And if we remember part one, 
Gail and Dewey were doing a lot of flirting, and then they went for a walk together during the party. They kissed when they accidentally rolled into the ditch. Like, there was, there was a connection there. And so this is presumably the first time they've seen each other since all that stuff went down the night of the party. And Dewey is not nice to her at first. He's very cold. She calls him Dewey. He's like, my name's Dwight. And (laughs) he's so precious. And so he starts walking away from her. She follows him. And it turns out Gail did not paint Dewey in a very flattering light in her book. And he's really upset about it. And so he starts quoting her book. Page 32. Deputy Dewey filled the room with his Barney Fifeish presence. Page 41. Deputy Dewey oozed with inexperience. <laughs> and she's just, oh, it's a character in a book, or you're overreacting. And during this scene, during this reunion, the song Brothers is playing again to kind of underscore Dewey mm-hmm. and then this moment with Gail. And so again, it's really perfect because. Dewey is quoting her book as the score comes in, and there's anger and there's pain in Dewey's eyes, but you can also see that there's a lot of adoration for her seeping through, and Dewey is such a sweet character. He doesn't yell. He doesn't call her names. He's honest, Mm -hmm. and he stands up for himself, but you can also tell that he's really hurt by what she wrote because he thought they connected, and he wouldn't be as hurt as he is if he didn't care about her, too. Yeah, agreed. And one of my favorite lines is she says, don't you think you're overreacting? And he says, no. What I think is that you're a money-hungry, fame-seeking, and forgive me for saying, mediocre writer who's got a cold storage shed where her heart should be. No offense intended. (laughs) And it's such a vicious quote from someone like Dewey. Yeah, because he's so, like, even though he's a cop, um, or a deputy, I'm sorry, he's still a very... Um, caring and you know he wants to find the good in everyone and he's always trying to be yeah, that positive exactly. like we talked about you know just being that positive person for you know no matter what the situation is and for Gail to just be a, a I mean he that was his way like he didn't curse at her or anything but his words were like cut through ice sharp you know what I mean like that hurt her too yeah Yeah, I think it did. And, of course, she doesn't show it. No. And in my head, I'm like, if someone said that to me, I would just take a moment and be like, but you think I'm a writer? (laughs) Can I get you saying that one more time? Let me record it. (laughs) Yes, exactly. That's exactly what I would say. Can I quote you on that? Oh, good things. Okay, so this is cute, too. Like, she she tries to apologize, and she reaches out to touch him, and he flinches. Like, really dramatically, because he doesn't want her near him. He's pissed at her. Do not touch me, pissed. Yeah. And I always think it's kind of cute the way he flinches, because he's like, no. And she says, I, I don't know what to say except I'm sorry. And he's just like, no, I'm sorry. I misjudged you. And if you'll excuse me, I've got some oozing to do. And he's just so adorably upset. And it's, yeah, it's so cute. Like, I mean, you feel so bad for him, because, like, that's what you're saying, that he it's evident that he really is hurt by her words. It just, it sucks because we know how great Dewey is and, you know, as a character and we just want him to be happy and she is a bitch. (laughs) 
So mm -hmm. we switched to that night, and there's the mixer at the sorority house, and Hallie's trying to get Sydney to join, so they're at the party, and Sydney's like, no, I don't really need to join a sorority, I'm fine. And she's like, you know, that's beginning to become your theme song, I'm fine. Yeah, fucked up, insecure, neurotic, and emotional. And so then the, the sorority goes greet them and stuff, but then at the same time, just down the way at Omega Beta Zeta, Sarah Michelle Gellar's character, Cece, is sober sister, which means like if one of the girls calls and needs a ride because she's too drunk or inebriated, Cece's going to go pick her up and drive her back to the dorm or wherever the hell else she needs to go. Cece starts getting a call from Ghostface. He chases her around and he kills her. He stabs her twice and throws her off the balcony. So we switch back to Delta Lambda Zeta, which is where Sydney and all her friends are. And certain people have been suspiciously absent for a minute, so note that wherever you will. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then they get word that something happened at Omega Beta Zeta and that cops are swarming. So everybody starts to leave the party. And if you listen really closely, you'll hear my honorable mention, Dear Lover by Foo Fighters. And then as everybody's leaving the house, Red Right Hand by Nick Cave and the Bad Seeds comes in too. So that's a nice throwback from part one. Yeah. Then everybody's gone. Like literally the entire house emptied, which I always thought was like impossible. Like there would be some people who stick around and finish the beer. <laughs> right? No, you're right, you're right, you're right. So completely empty. It's just Sydney, just Derek. They're about to leave. The phone rings and Sydney feels compelled to pick it up. Some people find issue with this. Like, why is she picking up the phone for a sorority house that she's not going to join? But I'm like, well, I think she wants to prove to herself that phone calls don't intimidate her anymore. So she picked it up. That's true. Like, maybe she's tired of um, living in the past. And again, you know, like with the caller ID and everything, like she's trying to be more brave. Yeah. Or, or she really knows who was calling because she answers the phone and... The person is ghost-faced, and he says, hey, Sydney, remember me? She's like, what do you want? And he's like, I want you. It's showtime. At least that's what it was in the movie. And mm -hmm. so then she's like, why don't you show your face, you fucking coward? And he's like, my pleasure. And it turns out he's in the room with her, and he shut the door, so it's just the two of them in the house. And he chases her through this house. And, of course, Ghostface is clumsy as fuck, so he's falling over furniture and shit. And then, like, she eventually runs out of the house. Derek runs into her, and he asks if she's okay. And then he goes in the house. Yeah, that's... He goes in the house. I would never. I mean, props for the bravery. Like, you are really a good guy, but Jesus Christ. No. <laughs> Absolutely not. So then after that, Dewey pops up, and then Dewey runs in after him, and we hear Derek scuffle with the killer, and the killer slices Derek's arm and then takes off. So this is traumatizing for Sydney because now her boyfriend is in the midst of it all and now he's hurt and she feels like it's her fault. Right. Then the cops are meeting up with Dewey and Gail and they're figuring out that there's a pattern. It turns out that the first three victims share a name with the first three victims from the first film and that story. So Maureen Evans, Maureen Prescott, Phil Stevens has the same name as Casey's boyfriend, Stephen Orth. And then Casey and Cece have the same name. Cece is just short for Casey. So this is a thing that they think they have a lead on and... 
some fans actually take a lot of issue with this whole duplicate Woodsboro scene because they find parallels and then the story just kind of drops after that, right? Right. I understand the frustration when people talk about, oh, this was stupid, it never went anywhere. Um, But I always kind of saw it as the killers creating a pattern so that everyone would be looking in one direction and then they could surprise everybody by going the other way. Ooh distraction yes yeah exactly so that they'd be like oh maybe we can figure out who's next okay yeah you focused your energy there and I will go after a b and c yeah that makes complete sense one thing that I feel like you and I know personally because we are SVU masters just a reminder (laughs) of course we know that like plenty of times there's always clues that pop up but they don't lead anywhere but they have to go off of everything they find out yeah And some things really are dead ends like that. So I always just kind of took it as it was a thing that they thought they were onto, and then it turns out like they weren't. That happens all the time in crime. Don't you guys watch (laughs) A&E? Go watch a true crime. Yeah. I need you all to brush up on your My Favorite Murder episodes, guys. Thanks. (laughs) Anyway, (laughs) at the same time, like, Sydney's been given, like, protection, so these two cops are following her around, and she's trying to tell Derek that she doesn't really want him around anymore because he's going to get hurt and he's not sure if she doesn't trust him or if she really is worried about him and then we go to the cafeteria scene and (laughs) Derek I guess proves his love to Sydney by jumping up on the lunch tables and he sings I think I love you (laughs) yes and do you like this scene so this scene always felt a little awkward to me kind of like it was put in out of place that makes sense mm-hmm. yeah um but you know me i do love a good uh let's belt out a song yeah the grand gesture <laughs> yeah in public so that to me is like adorably cute but i don't know it's just something about like uh maybe it was like a time killer yeah i can understand that for sure is it a scene that you like in particular or no yeah actually i love this scene <laughs> Oh, you're so cute. But here's the thing. Like, this is another thing that I realized when I was reading all these reviews for Scream 2. And a lot of fans hate this scene. Like, even the people who agree with me and love Scream 2 the best, they hate this scene. And, like, you, even though you feel like it's a bit of a time filler, you still like it, right? Like, it's still enjoyable to watch. Yes, definitely. A lot of people really hate this scene enough to, like, skip it completely. Or, like, oh, that should have been caught or whatever. And, like... I I just don't understand all the hate. Like, I've, I've only recently realized that people hate it. And I guess I've never really paid attention to what other reviewers were saying about it because I've always just kind of loved it. And, and I've never had a problem with it. But in fact, I actually kind of adore it because I think it's cute. And when he starts singing and he's like, what is he doing? And Mickey's like, uh, Tom Cruise Top Gun 1986. Like... <laughs> <laughs> it points out a movie reference. It's exactly the way that I would say it. And I feel like um, it's another part that people hate, whereas I love it for what it was. And it was another instance to look at Derek sideways. Interesting. Like, we know Sydney has trust issues, and Derek has begun to notice that more and more. And so when you watch the film and you notice all the little things about Derek that teeter between considerate and threatening... The singing gesture in the cafeteria can go either way because one way is the way it ends up being. Derek really does love Sydney and he wants everyone to know it. More importantly, he wants her to know. And he even breaks frat rules by giving her his letter necklace to tell Mm -hmm. her that it will keep her safe. And so this is a genuine gesture and Derek really cares about her. But if you think he's the killer, this scene 
takes a completely different tone. This scene looks more like he needs her to trust him so he can get her where he wants her. And by telling her and the whole school cafeteria that he's in love with her, it looks like an attempt to remove all suspicion because he's hiding in plain sight. I can definitely see that. Even though obviously I know who the killer is. I Every time I rewatch it, I kind of... I kind of notice more and more things that make other characters look suspicious. And this is one of those more obvious ones. Like, he wants people to think, like, if he were the killer, he wants people to think that he would never harm her because he loves her. And therefore, trying to go after her would not make sense for a guy like him. Very, very public gesture. Exactly. And plus, Jerry O'Connell is just kind of precious, I think. (laughs) (laughs) No, he really is. Then Randy and Dewey talk about the suspects, they talk about the rules to a sequel, and the rules are the body count is always bigger and the death scenes are always much more elaborate. And then there is a third rule, but Randy never says it in the film, however it is in the trailer. And fun fact, the third rule is, if you want your sequel to become a franchise, never ever assume the killer is dead. The joke is that they cut that out because... They don't really know the secret to becoming a franchise because a lot of franchises end up just like trash. Right. (laughs) That's kind of their way of like sideways winking at the camera and not having to solidify one specific rule in order to be successful. They suspect everyone. Jarek, Mickey, Hallie, Gail Weathers, even each other. Sydney rehearses her play. Fun fact, the score that she rehearses to is by Danny Elfman. However, it's not available anywhere. Is it because he owns the rights, or...? I don't know, but that was one of the major gripes about the reviews for the soundtrack album, for the score Mm -hmm. album at least. Many key tracks are noticeably missing, including Danny Elfman's. Even Marco Beltrami said that he had to cut a lot of the ones that did end up on the album because they are supposed to lead into other ones that weren't included at all. Oh, wow. So it's really lame. And if you go and look at the Scream 1, Scream 2 score albums, they're actually combined. So it's only like a 30-minute CD or like album. You know, it really wouldn't surprise me. I know Danny is very, very like protective over his songs, and he has really strict like copyright and um, labels and everything on his um, music and anything that he touches. Yeah, I'm also wondering if maybe it was like a studio thing or they couldn't come to an agreement. Yeah, probably one of those. It's hard to say, but it's unfortunate because it really is a a pretty cool like track and it's very dramatic. During the rehearsal, she sees Ghostface as one of the people on stage and she gets freaked out. And then we go to one of the most suspenseful, sad scenes in the entire franchise where Randy dies. (laughs) Um, This was really sad. Um, But it's it's also part of the reason why I love Scream 2 is that Randy became a really relatable character, fun to watch. We actually got to know him better and see him more in this film. Yeah. It just really sucks that he also ended up dying. And even Wes said that he knows the fan base never truly forgave him for doing that. No, I was, yeah, that was one of the biggest deaths to me that I was really upset about. Same. I'm still upset about it. So then Sydney ends up getting threatening messages. And at the same time, Cotton starts to ask her if she wants to do a Diane Sawyer interview. And she says no. 
And then he starts to get really threatening and he grabs her. So then her bodyguards come and arrest him. And this is when she finds out that Randy died. And everything is, the tone has kind of shifted now because it's hitting a lot closer to home and Sydney's in tears because Randy was her friend. And, you know, even Gail feels bad because her and Dewey were there. And it's just a really shitty situation. And so after everyone was at the station, Dewey and Gail decide to go and review her tapes that Joel left her with because they think that since the killer has been standing around and watching and, you know, reveling in every moment, then he might be in the background on some of her footage. So they end up going to the School of Film to watch the VHS tapes. Brothers actually plays again. (laughs) This is when they see footage of themselves and they start apologizing to each other and then they start making out and then another tv turns on and it's footage of all the victims before they got killed and this stops them from making out obviously right (laughs) and then they kind of look around and they realize that Ghostface is in the projection room and so Dewey tells Gail to stay there and he runs up the stairs and as soon as they see Ghostface a track begins called Love Turns Sour. And so Dewey runs up the stairs and he has no game plan, by the way. None. <laughs> like he does, I don't even think he has a gun. The frenzied score comes in as Dewey runs in to catch the killer. And the music induces a real panic in the audience because we don't know what Dewey's going to do. And he's just going off of stupid bravery at this point. So when he gets to the projection room, the camera does this really cool 360. And there's this high-pitched sound. And it's just kind of suspended as we're waiting to see if the room is empty. it is so the camera ends up back on Dewey and the cymbals crash and then the music comes to a complete halt and so he comes out he tells Gail there's nobody there the killer pops up behind Gail and the music comes back in and she gets attacked by the killer so she runs from the room she splits up from Dewey which is never a good idea never and so then she starts running through the halls and it's just door after door after door and she's trying all of them and they're all locked The music that is playing here just sounds like scurrying. And then she finally hides in a recording studio. This was always one of the, like, kind of, um, like, on the edge of my seat scenes. Yes, and a lot of people agree. Like, this is the most intense chase scene in the film. Mm-hmm. Because then Gail is basically in this maze of soundproof walls, essentially, and she's dodging the killer just enough. Then it's amazing. It's like I know we don't know what the room looks like as a whole, but it's amazing with some of these camera angles that it really does look like he would see her, right? Which just makes like, it even scarier. Exactly. That's what terrifies me. Yeah. Yeah. And so then as she's hiding, she finally finds a room to hide in. And the music intensifies because we end up in another room. The door opens 
but it's Dewey. And there's some nice guitar chords that welcome Dewey into the room. And it's obviously like we were all expecting a scare or we were expecting the killer to come through the door. But to see that it's Dewey, this comes across really well in the music. One of the things that Marco Beltrami has said about his work is that he feels like a lot of his scores kind of have a Western feel to them. And he even said toward the beginning of his career that he would really like to score a Western, which he has since done. I feel like that, his style, as far as the Western sounds go, is really evident in this part when Dewey walks in because it actually kind of reminds me of it's a very old town western kind of like the town that dreaded sundown like everyone's closed the shutters and everyone's gone and it's sunset but then the sheriff walks in and he's alone and that's kind of how I picture Dewey in this scene and there's like a tumbleweed exactly across. <laughs> yeah and and so this score in this part where he walks back in kind of reminds me of what you would hear if he was just walking alone on the dusty road waiting to see the slightest movement then Dewey this is so sad. Dewey walks in and he sees Gale on the other side of the glass. But what he doesn't realize is that this is soundproof glass. So yeah. she can't hear him. So he calls out her name. And there's a sad tone that really takes over the music when she can't hear him. And it's a really disheartening section of this whole track. So it just, oh, this scene just breaks your heart over and over again. So then the killer pops up behind him and stabs him in the back. And immediately the music changes again and it intensifies. The music is no longer calm, it's no longer hopeful, but actually it's terrifying. And the score is all we hear when Dewey is stabbed. So it's only when he screams into the microphone that Gail finally hears him. There's no audio on her end, but we watch as she screams from the other side of the soundproof room as the killer slams Dewey up against the glass, blood everywhere. Dewey slowly slides down the glass and Gail slides down with him and she's just like screaming and crying and helpless and it's just awful. I have chills because that scene is so sad. And the score right here sounds so final. And you really do believe that Dewey is dead. And with the way Gail reacts, she screams. She's unable to help him. Breaks your heart every time you watch it. <laughs> yes, every single time. Some other tidbits about Marco Beltrami's score tactics is that he uses a lot of electronic instruments, but he also used a lot of orchestral stuff. He approaches all of his films as though they are westerns. 
again, I feel like a lot of those sounds really come through, especially in this scene and various others throughout the Scream franchise. He's also referred to Sydney as being the lone hero, and even Dewey plays a deputy sheriff. So there are elements of the characters in this film that match the style of a Western. Sydney is going to be escorted away from the school. They're going to go ahead and have the two cops take her away. Her and Hallie are going to go to an undisclosed location where they're both going to be safe. And we're hearing the score track, Hollow Parting. We see through these double doors that Sydney and the cops are coming downstairs. And then the camera switches angles to Derek, who is actually waiting outside the doors. And the moment that the camera switches to Derek, the music alters into this ominous kind of echo sound. And he's just kind of looking around into the night. And you don't know if he's suspicious or not. Right. No, I completely agree. And the music, again, it lends such apprehension toward this character. You're always kind of giving Derek a second look. Yes, and then you're like, God damn it, like, how could she find the other boyfriend who would do the same thing as the first one? It would enter some sicko's mind to be like, I want to get so close to her, I should date her, I should become a friend, like mm -hmm. that kind of mentality. Exactly. So Sydney walks out of the building, and this is when Sydney realizes that he's been waiting for her, and she's not really sure how she feels about that. It's just amazing to hear this music go at different levels, because that's kind of like matching our heart rate right now like is he a good guy is he a bad guy it's so weird and he's again jerry o'connell plays it in such a way that you can take it either way no i absolutely agree with you like he makes it and he was perfect for this role because there are moments where i'm like oh man he like sid is so lucky she has like the sweetest boyfriend and then other times like i said i'm like oh my god she found a fucking psychopath <laughs> he stops her from getting in the car and she turns to look at him and he looks her in the eye he says when this is all over i'll still be here this gentle crash of symbols comes in as soon as he says that line and it's like the music itself is playing a part in how we should feel about Derek or how we don't know how we should feel about Derek. And it's almost like you can hear his words landing in Sydney's head and just all the ways she's trying to interpret it. Like, can she take him at face value? Can we? Yeah. Do I trust him? They kiss for one last time. The really nice piano comes in and gives them like one last little nice moment. Truth be told, this really is their last really nice moment. So kind of sad in retrospect yeah it really is when you go back and watch it again you know and you're like make it last just a little bit longer fucking sucks i feel so bad so then as soon as sydney and the car take off derek is kidnapped by his frat because they found out that he gave away his letters the cop car gets overtaken by ghostface he kills both the cops and then he sneaks up behind Hallie and he kills her too. Gail finally escapes the school and as she's running down the hall to get out, she runs into Cotton and he's got blood all over his hands and she's terrified of him. She immediately thinks he's the killer and he's saying like, no, I found Dewey. I tried to help him or something. So she runs outside and she finds Debbie Salt on a payphone 
<laughs> she's like, Dale, I was right in the middle of a story. I've got your goddamn story. <laughs> and then she's like, I need the police. The killer's cotton fucking weary. And Debbie's like, cotton weary? And so by now, Sydney has run all the way back to campus. And when she gets there, she hears the music in the theater. So she thinks that maybe Gus, the worst come to worst, maybe a, a couple theater students that she can go find and call for help or something. Right. So she runs into the theater and the music is playing and the lights are set and everything. Someone is obviously operating everything and they're fucking with her. And so she tries to escape and they bring down all the walls. And then one of the giant theater props flies down and Derek has been crucified on it, so to speak. This is where all the frat brothers left him after they hazed him for giving out the letters. And as soon as Sydney's trying to untie him, Ghostface pops up. He's still talking with the Ghostface voice. And he's like, I wouldn't do that if I were you. You really want to trust your boyfriend? And then the voice changes and he says, don't you know history repeats itself? Hmm. And it's Nikki. <laughs> <sighs> As tragic as this scene is, I fucking love this scene because Nikki starts taking off the ghost face costume. So he starts insinuating that Derek was in on it all along and Sydney mm -hmm. stops untying him. Oh, this is so tense. Yes, and this is when you as the audience are like, I fucking knew it. Sydney is like backing away from Derek and he's like, no, Sid, you know me better than that. He's crazy. And Derek is denying it, but Sydney doesn't know what to do. And Nikki does this really cute thing where he has the knife up to his forehead. He's like, hmm, boyfriend killer, boyfriend killer. Yes. <laughs> and then he's like, what do you think, Derek? Is Sydney experiencing some deja vu? And Derek's like, no, I'm going to fucking kill you. I'm going to fucking kill you. And Mickey kills Derek with a gunshot. And his dying words are, I never would have hurt you. Never. So somehow Sydney does not go psychotic at this particular moment because this is some traumatizing ass shit. Yeah. I don't know how she doesn't. Like, she stayed so calm, even though, like, she was literally, like, living her nightmare again. I almost wish that the book she writes in part four was real because I would fucking love to read a Sydney autobiography. Yeah, I'm not gonna lie. She's been through some shit. Immediately after Derek dies, Mickey goes off on Sydney, and I, I love this little exchange that they have. So Mickey goes off, and he's like, you should really deal with your trust issue, Sid. I mean, poor Derek. He's completely innocent, and he's such a nice boy, too. He's bright and funny and handsome, a decent singing voice, and he was going to be a doctor. This is just the kind of boy you'd like to take home to mom if you had a mom. <gasps> and she's like, Fuck you. He's like, oh, so vulgar. Did Billy let you talk to him this way? She's like, Billy was a sick fuck just like you. And Mickey's like, no. Billy was a sick fuck who tried to get away with it. Mickey is a sick fuck who wants to get caught. And so he starts explaining his motive. And he's basically saying that he's going to blame the movies. And he's an innocent victim. And he's going to go to court. And someone like Bob Dole is going to defend him. And a Christian coalition course will pay for his legal fees. It's airtight. And she's like, no, you're a psychotic. He's like, yeah, well, shh, that'll be our little secret. <laughs> I just love Mickey. Yeah, I know. He's a lovable killer because you're like, man, those one-liners and his delivery. Ugh. This is why people went after, like, Ted Bundy and stuff. <laughs>
you know what though you're right that's that charm it's that charm that charisma yes and so sydney and mickey fight and he's like sid you got a linda hamilton thing going but then someone lifts Derek up out of the scene and mickey's like well who's doing that and he's like i told you i had a partner sid surprise cameo just for you and then gail pops up and this is our little like false killer moment yes and right behind gail is debbie salt with a gun and well we know her as debbie salt but as soon as sydney sees her she is shocked and she says mrs loomis it's billy's mother Yes, and I'm not going to lie, when she first said that, I was like, who the fuck is Mrs. Loomis? Because again, again, I don't know if I just suck at paying attention to full names, but I'm like, Billy, Billy, like, Billy doesn't have a last name, and if they did, they barely said it and screamed. I'd like to go back and count how many times they actually say his full name. I was unaware that that was his last name until, like, the next two sentences and then I was like oh my god I know what now it all makes sense it's fair that you know his last name gets lost in the shuffle but I want to say that it was I think it was only mentioned once and it's when he gets apprehended for showing up at Sydney's house with a phone and Dewey is arresting him and they're like who do we got and he's like Billy Loomis and I think that's it yeah see I'm not crazy So it turns out that Debbie and Mickey were in on it together. She's actually been paying for his college. They met on the internet, psycho website, classifieds. And so he's all excited about the trial, but she's like, oh, Mickey, there's not going to be a trial. And she kills him with her gun. Because she's crazy. She also shoots Gail. So Gail disappears for a little bit. And then it's just Debbie and Sydney. I don't, I mean, I don't know for sure if it, her name is Debbie Loomis, but a, there's a lot of speculation on the internet that her name is actually Nancy Loomis. And if that's the case, it's a tribute to the actress from the original Halloween. Oh, okay. Okay. That would make sense. Yeah. I like to think it's Nancy, but I'm going to call her Debbie if that's okay. It's just Debbie and Sydney. And she, she kills Mickey. She's like, my motive isn't as 90s as Mickey's. Mine is just good old fashioned revenge. So she's pissed that Sydney killed her baby boy and that her mother broke up her family. And so now she wants to kill Sydney because she places all the blame on her. And so they fight and they have this really intense fight and they're rolling all over the fucking set and Sydney fucking with her by playing like the lightning and the thunder. And Sydney tries to escape. And then they start fighting again because, of course, Debbie is not down for the count. So they're fighting on the stage. Everything comes to an abrupt end when a gunshot goes off in the theater. It's Cotton. And he found the gun that Debbie tossed aside, hoping to frame Mickey with. And he wants an explanation. So Sydney explains everything. And Debbie's trying to reason with him. And she's trying to offer him everything he wants if he will let her kill Sydney. Cotton actually has a moment where he's like, well, she has a point, Sydney. I bet that Diane Sawyer interview sounds pretty good right now, huh? (laughs) And it's kind of a shitty thing to do, but if I'm being honest, I don't really think that Cotton had any intention of killing Sydney or letting Sydney die at this point. There was a moment where I was like, oh my god, he's not, he's not that big of an asshole. Like, please tell me this is just for show. Then there's a moment where you're like, at least for me, I was like, oh my god, he really is. Like, he's going to take Mrs. Loomis' side. And, like, 
be her new partner. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, I went back and forth in this very short scene. <laughs> it's short, but it's intense. Like, we know him, but we don't know him well enough to be able to definitively say, like, oh, I know what he's going to do for sure. Like, we don't know. Sydney finally agrees to do the Diane Sawyer interview. And as soon as she says yes, Cotton shoots the gun. And we can't tell at first who he shot. But after both ladies are laid out on the stage, Sydney is the one who coughs and eventually sits up. And Debbie, Debbie Salt slash Mrs. Loomis is dead. And so Gail wakes up and apparently she only got shot in the rib. So she's fine. <laughs> and she has a flesh wound. Mickey pops up for one last scare. They shoot him, and then Sydney shoots Debbie in the head one more time, just in case. So by now it's morning. Gail has some broken ribs, but Joel returns, and he gives her the microphone. He has the camera, and he says, oh, I thought we could get the scoop, like in the old days. He worked with her, like, for two days. And so she begins to do, like, a report, or she's about to, but then she hears a paramedic say, we've got a live one here. Brothers plays again because it's... And it's Dewey, and he's on a stretcher, and he's going to be okay. <laughs> she gives the microphone back to Joel without a word. She runs up the stairs, and she runs up to Dewey's stretcher, and you hear him say, where's Gail? And she's just so happy to see him, and he, he sees her, and so she gets in the ambulance with him and goes to the hospital with him, and it's just sweet. <laughs> it's so sweet. It's a moment that you don't expect, and so when Gail does that, you're like, oh, you're not just an evil person. Like, you do have something in there. Exactly, and what I love about it is that it's it's literally a straight contrast from the ending of part one. The ending of part one, the sun was coming up, the cops and ambulances were at the house, and Gail was still all bloodied up and doing a live report from Stu's house. She cares so much about Dewey, and her character has been hit personally. Reporting and trashy news and going live and getting her name out there stops mattering to her in this moment. And it's a good way for those characters to kind of drive off into the sunset, so to speak. Because, you know, for all we know, there is no Scream 3, but there's totally a Scream 3. The reporters swarm Sydney, and she's a little bandaged up, but she's okay. And they're like, Sydney, Sydney, what happened in there? Sydney, what does it feel like to be a hero? And she looks over, she sees Cotton, and she says, Dr. Cotton, he's the one you want to interview. He's the hero. So they all abandon Sydney. <laughs> Right to cotton. And they run up to cotton, like, cotton, cotton. He's like, guys, trust me, I want to tell you everything, but there's a time and a place and a price for everything. And Joel's like, come on, cotton, at least tell us something. He says, well, I'll tell you one thing. It'll make a hell of a movie. And then we go into our closing credits, and we see Sydney walking on the campus alone because everyone she knows and loves is dead. And then the movie <laughs> ends. <laughs> So that is the end of Scream 2, and the song that takes us out is She Said by Collective Soul, which is another one of my honorable mentions. I'm going to go ahead and include the entire score album. It doesn't. It does include tracks from Scream 1 and Scream 2, but I'm going to go ahead and put all of them on the blog. It really is an amazing score. I, I kind of liked having it on while I was like doing research and stuff, because it not only kind of got me in that kind of mood for spookiness, but also it's... It's really nice background music if, you know, the non-threatening parts. <laughs> right, right. 
So that does conclude my movie. I do have a few fun facts before we wrap. When they had to rewrite the script and rewrite the ending, the ending was printed on paper that could not be marked, could not be highlighted, could not be scanned. Like even the filmmakers said that when they were trying to look at it, they were having to hold it up to the light just to read it. Wow. Of course, at the same time, Kevin Williamson was working on the set of Dawson's Creek, which he also created. And so he was kind of splitting his time. And so Wes Craven actually sent someone from Scream to the Dawson's Creek set just so they could get Kevin to write script pages for Scream 2 in his spare time or so that he could dictate pages of the script to the assistant so the assistant could relay it back to the filmmakers of Scream 2 and they could all piece the film together. That is insane. Even Jerry O'Connell says that he did not know how the end was going to work out until the day that they shot it. The editor said that Derek's singing scene is said to have been the most difficult scene to edit because they did not pre-record him singing. And so for each take, Jerry O'Connell ended up singing in a different key every time. So the editors also had to work with that as well as synchronize the clapping. Oh no, I'm sure that was incredibly hard. Pain in the ass. And then here's my last fun fact, and this I think is actually kind of funny. Because Scream 1 took multiple cuts before the MPA would take them down from an NC-17 rating to an R rating, the editors purposely created a cut for Scream 2 that was way more gory and way more bloody than they actually wanted it to be because they were they were baiting for an NC-17 rating, and they were waiting for the MPA to say no to that cut so that they could get the version back, cut it down exactly the way they wanted, and then send that in and get the R rating. But it turns out the bloody, gory version received an R rating on the first try, whereas Scream had to be sent back various times. So that does do it for Scream 2, directed by Wes Craven, released 1997. Yay! And for those of us who are Scream heads, uh, I think we all know by now, Scream 5 is currently in production. Yes, yes, yes. Does it have an official title yet? Um, last I checked, it was called Untitled Scream 5 Movie. Okay. Or something like that. I would love if they went like a Joel Schumacher route and they were like, scream forever. Or something. Ooh, <laughs> I'm feeling that. I'm feeling that. Do you think this is going to be the last one? I definitely don't want Scream to become like Jason X. Because even in Scream 4, they joke about one of the stab movies going into space. And I'm like, please don't. Yeah. <laughs> I love 90s horror so much. We hope you enjoyed our first episode back to Spooky Season. Yes, it is our favorite, and we're so excited to continue Spooky Season with you guys. Indeed. Find us on Instagram at Hey Soundtrack City. Our link is in our bio, and there you will find the links to our blog, our Twitter, our Podbean, Spotify, iTunes, Google, all the different device, all the different outlets for your listening pleasure. Except title. <laughs> well, guys, we hope you enjoyed, and we are looking forward to the rest of spooky season with you guys. Yes, and until then, that was Frankie. And that's Nisa. And we hope you guys are taking care, staying safe. We hope you will vote and be a good citizen. Yes, early voting is officially open, guys. And go. Go vote.
we use go vote we just want everyone to uh, use their voice and uh, let's make 2020 a little bit better please it will give us a beacon of hope at the end of this godforsaken dark tunnel yeah for real thank you so much for listening and we heart you so much thanks bye guys